Hello and welcome back to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, the podcast that takes an old issue of Britain's brightest pop mag, Smash Hits, has a good nose through its pages with a guest. I'm Gavin Hogg, and in these dark days of perfidious Albin, he remains the David Bowie to my Bing Crosby, why it's the little drummer boy himself, it's Simon Galloway. Rupper pum pum. A pum pum to you. <laughs> Actually, while we're talking to David Bowie, we should just briefly mention today's a very special day for you. It's your birthday, isn't it? It is. On the day that we're recording this, it is uh, yeah, my birthday. I just enjoyed uh, a Bowie cake. Yes, and I believe you had a special message from Beyond the Grave. I had from... a special message from Beyond the Grave from Zavid himself. <laughs> that, that must have been amazing. Thank you for arranging that. that you're and, welcome. Uh, also, thank you for my David Bowie birthday card. And uh, I've just had a cup of tea, in, uh, a three ginger uh, herbal tea and a David Bowie mug. It's a fantastic Bowie birthday, isn't it? What an amazing day. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday, kids. So, sorry, before we spin, spin, spin the merry-go-round, what is the latest from the Carousel Coffee Kiosk? Ah, well, we've had quite a few coffees in. Our cup it literally overrunneth. So Sue, who was our guest, yeah, yeah. Uh, most recent guest on the Carousel, uh, she said it was a pleasure to be a pop kid. Thanks, guys. Bought us a coffee. Oh, thanks, Sue. Uh, thanks, Much Sue. obliged. Uh, the mysterious coffee supporter said, thanks for all the pleasure. When each episode pops up, to quote Simon, like the wolf, I'm hungry for it. <laughs> I don't know if he's quoting me or, or, Simon, or, or, Le bon. or Simon Le Bon. I'm imagining Le Bon. Do you ever say that? I think I may have said that. <laughs> well, maybe you then. I don't know. <laughs> uh, James Cook, also known as Oddly Named Villagers, says, uh, thanks, Gav, Simon and Sue for a wonderfully humorous pod. I had no idea about the John Wayne is big leggy song meaning. Plus, we need to see that Depeche Mode photo, Sue. Cheers. Oh, thank you, James. Matt Medland uh, says, loving these pods, loving these pod pods, fellas. Maybe pop pods. Pop pods, maybe it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, taking me back to the giddy days of Mark, unpronounceable name of big country, Dane David Bowie, Fab Macca, Wacky, Thumbs Aloft, McCartney and Adam Clear off Clayton. <laughs> Uh, Pete Brasted said, good to see the carousel spinning back into action. And uh, Richard Drew is here again. Richard Drew, buying us a coffee. Bless him. He's always there. Thanks, Richard. (laughs) It's like an addiction, this, he says, but without the hangover. Yeah, it's a good way to think of it. It is. Buy us another one next month. Thank you. (laughs) Very kind. And if you want to support us, you too can do the same. It's very simple and it can be just a one-off thing or you can buy us as many coffees as you like, as often as you like. It is up to you. Just go to ko-fi.com forward slash giddy pop pod. That's ko-fi.com forward slash giddy pop pod. And chuck us a few quid to help keep the carousel spinning. Or if you want to, just leave us a review or a rating and just do that instead. You can. And uh, just also just say hello to everybody who's joined us over the last few months since our appearance in the Observer Sunday Review back in the summer. I uh, hope you've enjoyed dipping into uh, our back issues. Yeah, uh, if, if you look, there's a little episode uh, about uh, about our experience with that, with the photographer and everything. And just another little mention as well for the uh, Permanent Record podcast. Yes, indeed. If you listen to the show that we did with our pals Sarah and Brian, Permanent Record podcast, the Duran Duran concert special that came out in mid-September... Me and Sai appear at the end, just giving a little rundown on what happened. And we're also giving them the scoop on some Smash It's language that they would struggle to translate into American English. Smash It's ease. Yes, indeed. But we, we helped them out there. A little service we offer. Yeah. So uh, down to the important stuff now. Gav, what's occurring in the land of the carousel? So the carousel creeps into action once more. And Sai has developed a patented method to find a new issue to land on. 
He scans various social media posts, searching for any photographs featuring the distinctive HITS logo, and then, using fractal prisms, loon wire technology, and some old mung beans from behind the fridge, he's able to transport the carousel to the exact moment the picture was taken. It's a bit like the premise for the TV programme Quantum Leap, except it's always a carousel landing near a copy of Smash It's, rather than some chap becoming a spaceman, a zookeeper, or a pirate. Or was that Mr Ben? We digress. Through the prism, he finds a picture of a surly young punk rocker type wearing a dog collar in Los Angeles and clutching a rolled-up copy of The Hits. And we land with a clunk onto the sun-bleached sidewalk. With a friendly, ahoy there, we greet the person with such good taste in magazines, fully expecting an American accent. Instead, we're treated to a litany of four-letter expletives, many of which are unknown to us innocent fops, and we jot them down to look up at a later date. The voice is a familiar English one for the person we've shocked due to the unexpected appearance of a massive fairground carousel at her side is none other than Mickey Berenyi, member of Lush and Poroshka and author of the recent and most excellent memoir, Fingers Crossed. Mickey, welcome to the carousel. Uh, thank you for having me along. <laughs> You're very welcome. Which horse from the array of imaginary horses you see before you would you like to sit on? Um, I would rather sit, you know, like some carousels have sort of like a little carriage that yeah. is drawn because then I can relax a bit. I'm not very good at balancing at this age. That's anymore. fine. We, we can arrange that for you. Yeah. Okay. One with a carriage. Right. Yeah. Well, so I just, I get just, on it. <laughs> I can lounge more. They're usually in the middle. You know, you have horses on the outside and horses on the inside. Yeah. And then on the inside, you have, in the middle bit, you have all the kind of other paraphernalia and yeah. I'll sit on something like that. That sounds quite, sounds quite regal. Yes, yeah. it is quite regal. Yeah, it is. That is me. <laughs> so the carousel will begin spinning once you answer this question carefully in time on tradition. Have you ever been sick in a gumboot? Um, no, not in a gumboot, no. Okay, near no. a gumboot ever? I've been sick on many, many occasions and probably in all sorts of interesting receptacles, but not a gumboot. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's fine. It's an honest answer to an honest question, so the carousel can now begin spinning. The carousel has spun us back to the smash hits of the 23rd of December 1982 to the 5th of January 1983. Uh, yours for a mere 40p, and if you want to read along with us, you can do just that. Thanks to the Light Punk Never Happened and Smash Hits Remembered websites, you'll also find uh, links to the scans of the issue in the episode show notes, along with Spotify and YouTube playlists. <laughs> along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of the hits. Uh, you'll also find these links on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, and we'll post them on our Twitter, well, say Twitter, whatever it's called this I'm week. Not, I'm not calling it yeah. the other um, Facebook feeds as well. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. And just to say, uh, you can now find us on Threads and Blue Sky. Just search for um, Giddy Pop Pod on there. Just saying... It's like, like a break glass in case of emergency okay. type thing. That's what we've got. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll take a look. Mickey, would you like to take us back to late 1982? What was happening? Where were you? What was going on? Okay, so the, like that photo that you saw, so I'm thinking I was 15 and my mum lived in LA, so I was visiting there and my grandparents were there as well, my Japanese grandparents, 
because the photo, I kind of cropped it to make it look a little bit cooler than it actually was. But if you pan back out, <laughs> there's like my grandparents there and my mum sort of walking alongside me. And um, yeah, I used to go on holiday to see my mum in LA, which was very glamorous, but it was a bit... I mean, in retrospect, I think it was probably quite good for me because it kind of got me out of the madness of, of being in London, which would, you know, I was sort of, I was tipping into sort of going to gigs and getting into quite a lot of trouble um, <laughs> by that age. Um, although, interestingly, I have to say, I have, because I brought along my diary that covers that period as well. Mm. And it's weird how it echoes with what we're about to talk about. There's quite a few sort of like features in this magazine that sort of are reflected in my diary. But um, on that occasion when I went to America, I did actually lose my virginity. <laughs> so I was getting into trouble there as well. Yeah, <laughs> so, international, international troublemaker. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, but um, yeah, I mean, I was coming up to, I think there's quite a bit in my diaries. I think I had my mock O-levels, what are now called GCSEs, um, that January. So mm. that's where I was at. And I was at school at, quite a posh school called Queen's College. I'd gone to quite a few schools in my time and and I think I'd been at Queen's for like a couple of years and had just met Emma mm. probably maybe that year or the year before she'd come to Queen's as well. There was a little knot of about five of us who were going to gigs together and stuff. Um, so Emma was who I ended up forming Lush with. So, you know, all these little seeds were kind of planted at that time, which is, um, and it was, I think it was when we were on the foothills of, you know, because we, like, none of us had older siblings, so we were all, we started going to gigs, probably, you know, that we'd seen in Smash Hits, and we would go and see quite big chart bands, and I think going into 83 was where we started to see smaller and smaller and smaller bands kind of go and see a band, then go and see their support headline somewhere smaller and then kind of go down that ladder that way which you could do in London because gigs were very cheap and there was tens of them every night so yeah well you, you very kindly shared your gig list with us from that kind of period and I was amazed by how many gigs you went to and so many like incredible bands you saw like really early on in their careers a lot of the time yeah I was just amazingly jealous and you were like light years ahead of where I was I mean I'm like three years younger than you so I would have been 12 at that point but by 15 I think I'd, I don't even, I think I'd been to like one gig by the time I was 15 and you were going to like, what, maybe a couple of weeks at least, right? Pretty much. Yeah. Well, I mean, we went to a lot. I think it was the mix of being quite unsupervised as well. So I had quite a lot of freedom. I said didn't drink, so it wasn't, mm. you know, I mean, I'd get drunk on half a cider, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So that cuts out a lot of the expense. Transport was really cheap back then, you know yeah. what I mean? And gig, gigs weren't that expensive. You know, you'd go and see a band and it would be... A quid often. I remember going to see like Death Cult, yeah. their first gig. That was a pound. Wow. You know, at the Brixton Ace. So, yeah, you know, and even affordable. like these bigger gigs, even going to like Susie and the Banshee, it would be like £3.50 or something. It wasn't like a really big gig like Japan at the Hammersmith yeah. Odeon. That would might be like six quid. Yeah. But nothing compared to current prices, the equivalent now. You'd be paying like 80 quid or something, wouldn't you? Minimum, yeah. And, and they didn't really check your age. You know, I think as a girl, especially, you get away with that. But I saw loads of people were underage who went to gigs and clubs and pubs and all of that. They never checked. 
<laughs> you know, there's there's benefits and deficits to that, I'll admit. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? yeah. <laughs> but but um, just a really vibrant time. And also, I do think because we didn't have the internet and we didn't have that sort of access, you know, and if you lived at home, which most people did at the age of 15, let's face it, you know, there's like one TV, which your parents monopolise. Mm. And, you know, if you get on the phone for too long, people are screaming at you and it's in the corridor and everybody's yeah. listening. In. You know what I mean? There's very little to do at home. So you mm. just went out all the time if you possibly could. So I think that that sort of obsessiveness that I think was fed by magazines like Smash Hits, because although it's a music magazine and although it featured like kind of chart acts, there was a lot about where these bands were going and and their lifestyles. And mm. I mean, I don't want to use the word gossip because it wasn't kind of nasty. It was actually just quite sweet how they they didn't just sort of show you the kind of PR bubble version of a band it kind of showed them zipping about in their locality and what cafe they went to or do you know what I mean yeah, yeah. and so it made it quite accessible and made you realize that there's a whole kind of scene and and all of this is going on right around you yeah it didn't feel like they were sort of you know, like if you watch Top of the Pops, you think everyone drives around in limos or whatever. <laughs> but I think reading Smash Hits, you really did get the feeling that these people are getting on the tube or on the bus and they're going to like a local calf and that yeah. all you have to do is step out of your door and get engaged and and you can meet these people, which we did. I was going to say, yeah, there's a bit in the book, I think, where you talk about one great day where you meet Mike Nolan and some members of Orange Juice. Yeah. And I think there was someone, someone out of the exploited. Big John, I think Big John out of the exploited, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Took him all off your bingo card. Oh, but we used to see yeah. people all the time. I mean, not least because Queens was in um, Harley Street. So it's just up the road from Oxford Street. So even at lunchtime, we'd go out, we'd specifically go, right, to South Malton Street, which is quite a posh, quite designery sort of Bond Street-y area. But it had all these sort of um, kind of... It was the sort of place that Duran Duran and Spandau Ballet, all those kind of new romantic people would buy their clothes. I can't remember what the shop was called, but it was it was on South Martin Street. And we would literally just walk <laughs> past and then sort of go, eyes, right. <laughs> and then we sort of look and then, and like half the time you go, oh my God, I've just seen whoever, yeah. right? And they'd be in the shop and then we'd hang around outside till they came out. And also... Radio One was round the corner. Uh, okay. So broadcasting house. So and there was a church opposite. So if you sat on the steps there, yeah, you'd see DJs and people kind of coming in Walking, and out. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. So it was great for sort of celebrity spotting and then autograph hunting. <laughs> yeah, felt quite privileged with that. And and you know, and if you did that circuit of which we did on weekends. Go to Carnaby Street, go to Kensington Market, go to King's Road, which were the sort of hangout places of kind of punky types and, you know, youth tribes, I suppose. Mm. Um, I think Camden came just a little bit later for us. And the thing is, is people, you know, people in bands really did, even when they were really famous, they did just kind of hack about in London. Like, they didn't have limos and bodyguards and things. You know, I can remember getting... Simon Le Bon's autograph because he was just walking into HMV and this is when they were super famous yeah. I remember because Emma had gone to get her hair cut at Antenna 
and they wouldn't let me sit and wait with her. So I hung around at HMV and then I met Simon Le Bon and she was so angry. <laughs> she was so angry because it was such a terrible haircut as well. And she was like, I fucking knew it. <laughs> I just met Simon Le Bon. <laughs> but she did end up, actually years after last, she actually um, worked for, for Duran Duran, I think their management okay, so, so in, in the long run she yeah. ended up hobnobbing with Simon yeah, she played the long game yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> she got taken out for dinner and all sorts so that yeah that beat my minor experience but um yeah you know I think there was you know there was a place called Coconut Groves I think my mate Maxine met Martin Kemp there you know it was just ridiculous yeah. but you know we and also all these people were really quite sweet to their fans you know they weren't really getting mobbed if you know what I mean and it wasn't kind of you know, people were a bit more casual, I think, about celebrity, you know. So if you're a teenage girl, like, fair enough. But it wasn't like, you didn't get, like, just hordes of people stopping and pointing, if you see <laughs> what I mean, which you would now. You know, clearly yeah. once you get to the era of Amy Winehouse or Britney Spears or whatever, it actually stops traffic. But it just didn't back then. And, yeah. you know, you could see Banana Rama walking up the road and, and just sort of whisper excitedly to each other. And, and it was fine. So, yeah. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. I'm rambling. Go on. It's all right. Did you have any particular favourite bands then or, or were you just into everything? Well, we were kind of into everything in that um, we were just sort of really sponge-like. So we would literally get smash hits and leaf through it. And then on Oxford Street, there was an hour price that had like a ticket booth and they actually gave out these strips where someone would hand write in all the gigs that were coming up. So we, we'd literally just get that and go through it and go, all right, let's get that, let's get that, let's get that. And then you'd get all your kind of advanced tickets. Mm. So we were, we were sort of soaking things up. And like I say, as we kind of went down, I mean, literally that gig list page I sent you starts off with like, you know, Teardrop Explodes and... Japan and Spandau Ballet and it's all kind of quite big gigs and by the time you get to the bottom of the page it's like Sisters of Mercy Higsons there's quite a lot of Higsons yeah, yeah, I was yeah. going out with someone who was really into the Higsons so that, <laughs> that kind of yeah did for that but um, there isn't just the big gigs there's like loads and I think it was a time of a lot of kind of youth tribes so mm. You know, I saw, I mean, I saw the Smiths supporting the Sister Mercy. So it was full of goths, yeah, you know, yeah. but actually, you know, there would be psychobilly gigs. There'd be anarcho punk gigs. There'd be like old school punk gigs. There'd be, you know, all of these different sort of things were happening that were kind of beyond that chart thing. Mm. You know, I think actually there was an edition of Smash Hits that had Southern Death Cult in it once. I don't know which one it is. Yeah, no, there, I'm sure there will have But been, you'd yeah. get to the point where these bands would get big enough to just skim into the pages of Smash yeah, Hits, yeah, you yeah. know. And so they, I thought that was quite nice, actually, that there was a kind of, you know, what was great about Smash Hits was it did have that broader remit, mm. you know, that it would kind of have a nod towards that stuff. But they didn't have to be like major label fodder that were just kind of being PR to the hill. It could be an actual gigging band like Southern Death Cult or Dance Society or something. Yeah, it was were... very democratic, wasn't it? If, if yeah. people liked it, it would be in there. And they did seem to have a real interest in music, mm. you know. 
I mean, clearly they were forced to cover, like, Renee and Renato and whoever else. <laughs> you know, they were kind of stuck with the thing of what's in the charts. But I do think they did a pretty good job of picking, you know, what the readers would want. I think it's really interesting that clearly this applies or appeals to young girls. I mean, clearly there's a lot of Duran Duran and a lot of the boys are sort of portrayed as kind of pin-ups. But the writing itself is actually, you know, it's serious. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But it, I like how it encompasses what probably girls are more interested in, like inter interpersonal relationships and, you know, what those bands do in their spare time and not yeah. necessarily which studio button they twiddled yeah, when they what did whatever. they're using. Or, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so I think they, it's really interesting. They trod quite a good middle ground. But um, anyway, your question was, was what bands I was into. But there was one thing I was going to say... <laughs> Because right when this diary begins, and literally on page one, yeah. is I didn't I wrote it in the middle of the year, so it wasn't like January first, but it was in November. Me and Emma, we'd met basically. We'd gone to Covent Garden and we'd seen Tom Bailey out the Thompson Twins in Flip, right? And we were like, oh my god, you know, did the usual kind of starry-eyed whatever. Anyway, he came out and he signed this autograph, and we were chatting to him, and then he said, oh, oh yeah, we're actually you know, mixing a record tomorrow. And he mentioned the studio, it was Rack Studios, which was in St John's Wood, which was literally about 20 yards from Emma's house. <laughs> so we were like, oh my God. So I went around her house and we went outside Rack Studios and we were standing outside and looking up at the studio windows and we could see him going past. Yeah. So I remember we bought ourselves a bottle of Strongbow, which we shared, <laughs> and we were there for probably about four hours outside. Yeah in the end, like, chucking bits like sandwich crusts at the window and anything. And then he kind of poked his head out and we were like, oh, shit! And we hid in the basement and he came down and he looked over and he said, well, do you want to come in? He said, oh, it's you two, I met you yesterday. And we were like, hello! <laughs> and we sat there, like, all day while, they, while he mixed Love on Your Side and... Oh, my God, I was just in so... I was so excited, but I was so, like... We were just whispering at each other and, like, staring and eating these sandwiches and drinking cups of tea, but it was absolutely amazing. And then he kind of... He sort of kept in touch with us, right? And I think we came to see them, and then he actually... You know, there's bits where he phones me in my diary where... Because he'd met my mum in L.A., <laughs> So it's really weird, you know. Anyway, so I put some of this in the book, right? I yeah. put some of the initial kind of meeting with him. And I elaborated more because I said, oh, you know, we went to see him there and then he called me and then he went and saw my... And our publisher, my publisher, Peter at 9-8, when I sent him all these pages, he said, like, did you sleep with him? And I was like, God, no. For Christ's sake, is that what it sounds like? And I was like, okay, right, I'm cutting all of that. <laughs> he was genuinely just a really just a nice, nice guy. guy, you know, and in the wake of all this Russell Brand stuff, you think, you know, but I was probably right to do so because God knows what people would think, you know. And But honestly, it was just really sweet. He was just lovely to his fans. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, it was dazzling for us. But again, you know, I think Arista... The label he was signed to had a kind of offices on Cavendish Square, which was up the road from our school. So we used to bump into him. Yeah. And um, it was great, you know. So I think, you know, that contact maybe with that world as a 16-year-old, um, 
And it was very innocent, mm. you know. I mean, weirdly, all the sort of real grim stuff that I got at gigs when I was that age was actually in the audiences, you know. It's the thing about being a sort of 15-year-old girl pressed in amongst a load of blokes is that there was just constant groping mm. and all of that, you know. That was actually the worst of it. But anyway, that aside... <laughs> That aside, it was a great. It was a great period, and yeah, you're in the centre of a pop universe, aren't you? Really? Well, it felt like it was, you know, that it was just a playground that was kind of that. I mean, I, I'll be honest. There's, there's even, you know, I can remember mates going on top of the pops, and you could do that because you lived in London, and and you know, you just send off for. Uh, Tickets and there was all sorts of things where I had friends who got invited to be in the audience for whatever. I mean, you know, again, this is slightly dodgy because they clearly saw, you know, young 16-year-old girls like, let's get some of those in to mm. be in the audience of whatever filming or whatever. Yeah. But it wasn't massively unusual. And I think all of these things, when I look back to all these different strands, you just think, well, it's a great thing to encourage you to get into music, whether it's just TV shows or it's smash hits or mm. it's, you know, kind of radio shows and all of that, you know, just to instigate a kind of passion for music. Mm. And I think, yes, that, that real democracy of it, because I think once I got a bit older, like I think girls were a bit closed out of it, to be honest. Mm. You know, I think the pop years are when there's more effort to appeal to you, mm. you know? Yeah. We're talking about Smash It's when did it kind of enter your universe and do you remember like the first issue you bought when how old you would have been? Actually it probably wasn't that long before. Mm. Um I was definitely when I was at Queens, I think it, I would have been about fourteen or something. But I'll be honest, a lot of it was buying it because they would have posters. Yeah. You know, and you'd stick them on your wall and I'm all for that. <laughs> <laughs> did you kind of graduate onto like the enemy and Melody Maker and stuff, or did you keep buying Smash It's for a long time? Do you I bought Smash It's for quite a long time. I think the, I remember buying Record Mirror, which was another kind of um, broadsheet one, mm. but it was more pop and probably quite sneered at by you know the enemy and the maker and that lot. To be honest, when I first bought the NME, it was for the gig list. Because mm. half the writing, I just thought, I don't even know what this is. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of literally don't philosophy understand. Philosophy and linguistic theory. And well, and it was a bit dull, yeah. <laughs> if I'm honest. You know, for a kind of teenager, it was just a bit pretentious. Mm. Actually, the sort of singles reviews were quite good as a little way in, you know, just to find yeah, out quite a little comprehensive. bit more. Yeah, but Probably I think those it. kind of double-page features just used to... I'd yeah. get halfway down and think, oh, do you know what, I don't care, really. <laughs> like, see, I would argue that the NME really didn't introduce me to many new bands because mm. it was just too inaccessible. Whereas, although bands like The Fall and Echo and the Bunnymen and Joy Division, all of those would have been, and you know, staples of the NME, I got into those bands because I got into the Teardrop Explodes, thank you, Smash Hits, mm. and then I bought a pop book that was called Liverpool Explodes. Mm -hmm. It was quite photo-y in its way, but it had the Bunnymen and the Four and Wah, and, and that's why I got into those bands, because I thought, oh, well, if they're all talking about each other, and, yeah. and again, it, had, it set that scene of them all going to Eric's and they were all saying that their influence was the Four... 
And, you know, so that was the trajectory I followed rather than buying the NME yeah, and being yeah, really yeah. hip and do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that that pop route and speaking to your audience, you know, I do think that once it got to the enemy, it wasn't really talking to people like me. Mm. It wasn't talking to teenage girls. And, no, and you not. get that, you know, you think, OK, well, that's not really I'm not really welcome in that room. So I'll <laughs> leave you get guys to elsewhere. it. You. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, let's get stuck into the mag then, shall we? On, on the front of this issue, Kurt and Roland from Tears of Fears are doing their best serious faces against a red and purple background. Kurt's little row of... I mean, what are they? Pigtails? Little plaques? I used to call I them rat tails when rat I was a tails, kid. But I, that's, that's what I would have called them, rat yeah, tails. Exactly. But, yeah, they're, they're kind of poking round from his back of his head and you know, just resting, resting on his shoulders <laughs> there. And uh, let's have, have a little look at the content, shall we? Let's have a look. So the songs that are in here, bearing in mind that this is the issue that we've been uh, spanning over Christmas. So what dominates this issue is the reader's poll results, the second Smash It's reader's poll. And uh, there's no reviews in there. So there's plenty of songs there. We get Phil Collins, You Can't Hurry Love, Party Party by Elvis Costello, Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy, David Bowie and Bing Crosby, um, The Masonettes, Heartache Avenue, Melt by Susie and the Banshees, I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter by Barry Manilow. In and Out by Willie Hutch. I wonder what that's about. Uh, I Confess by The Beat. Uh, Friends Shalimar. I Feel Loved on a Summer. That would be in the uh, Patrick Cowley remix. Although when it's the lyrics, they're just the same lyrics. Um, Under Attack by Abba and Wish I Could Write a Love Song by Chaz and Dave. Gotcha. Um, the features are Tears for Fears, who are on the front, um, Madness and Culture Club. We also get posters of, or in colour, Susie, Madness, Wham and Books Fizz, alongside the usual little features and bits and bobs that we shall get to as we go throughout the magazine. Can I just mention one thing about the cover? Because I was looking at the cover yeah. thinking, what, do, what does that colour remind me of? Mm -hmm. And I realised it was that... It's uh, almost like the same... Oh, I, think, I see what you mean. Yeah. Heaven or Las Vegas. Yeah. Like, what is it? So, <laughs> so zoom me head in. Yeah, <laughs> like, so, so you reckon this is like a, a, an early attempt at smashing? So I think Vaughn 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 Oliver had seen that. Right. And thought, I like them colours. Secret Tears for Fears. I think that's what it is. I think man. that's what's going on there. Yeah. Just putting it out there. This is the root of the, the 4AD look. I think so. There we go. We'll <laughs> see what the pop kids make of that. But, yeah. Yeah. Can I just also mention that although Kurt has his rat tails i would actually argue their hair looks incredibly clean i mean it could be a sort of hairdresser's in a hairdresser's window it's very yeah very it's almost like a high definition hair. photo you feel like you reach into the photo and yeah. ruffle their uh yeah, yeah well, their certainly, certainly roland's hair is looking a little bit uh, fluffy yeah yeah she yeah, just had a good blow dry and Definitely. then you could just just these ruffling up a little bit. That I cheap guess you're right, gel. it's the, it the era of the blow dry, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, oh, totally. And sticky yeah, yeah, gel. Yeah. It would have had yeah. sticky gel in there, I'm yeah, sure. That doesn't look sticky at all. Look at it. No, no I think, I think um, Roland soft. will have done. I think, Kurt's, I think Kurt's all right. I always thought of them as a, not a great hairband, Tears for Fears. I don't know. No. I don't and, know what you'd, and that total inab it. inability to kind of look at each other. Yeah. Or, I mean, they are actually looking in the same direction which is a, a unique occurrence yeah. in, in the world of Tears for Fears, not facing opposite directions. But Roland's hair definitely got bigger over the years, didn't it? It did. He, he needed some frizzies, that's what he needed. Yeah. I, I, have the, I have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't get me on a humid day. 
you know, this is a Christmas issue. It does need to be pointed out yes. that, hence the prevalence of quite appalling records, the sort of Manilows and even the kind of little drummer boy things and what have you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like Christmas period, which is never great, is it, for music? And I also think, having worked in publishing, the Christmas issue is always something that has to be done ahead of time. And it's a real ball ache, you know. <laughs> so I can understand why they've like literally plastered about sort of however many pages that are just the kind of reader's poll results. Yeah. Where they can just fill that, <laughs> you know, space. That's a huge chunk of the magazine. Yeah, it? yeah. It's massive. So we'll turn the page and we get to the part that they're called Start. And it's got a personal file of Grandmaster Flash, whose real name we find out is Joseph Sadler. He was born on January the 1st, 1957, in New York. So he's, he's got his birthday coming up. Uh, it seems to have got a bit of a thing for Barry White, because that was yeah. the first record he ever bought. I'm Going to Love You a Little Bit More, Baby, by uh, Old Bazza. And also his, his first concert as well. It says, I never really went to any concerts. The first one I went to was a couple of years ago. It was a Barry White concert. So but yeah. Barry's clearly uh, big in the world of, of Grandmaster Flash. And whoever was asking the questions uh, is questioning the maths of uh, the Furious Five, it says here, why are there seven people in the Furious Five? Here's the explanation from Grandmaster Flash himself. Because when I'm moving as fast as I move, I need someone to pass me the records like flying pancakes. Pass me that, pass me this. Constant motion, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five make six. Michael Warren, my assistant, makes it seven. There you so go. Yeah, we know now. You can all rest easy. Yeah, <laughs> mathematical logic of uh, Grandmaster, <laughs> Grandmaster yeah. Flash there. I, I quite enjoyed the bit where he's talking about uh, favourite mode of transport because obviously as rap and hip-hop developed, you know, there's often a thing about people boasting about their big cars and, yeah. you know, the Flash cars. Uh, Grandmaster Flash says, um, his favourite mode is a nice car as long as someone else is driving it. I like the Audi, the Mercedes is okay, and an economical car like the Regal, which I guess is like maybe a Fiat Punto or something, I don't know. I've driven all of those three, and the fronts of them aren't too big. My judgment ain't that good when it comes to driving, so I couldn't drive big cars. I like that he's kind of honest and so, quite self-deprecating, and, you know. He's got a good knowledge of uh, fuel economy yeah, as well. Exactly. So it's like talking to my dad or something. Yeah. I'll tell you what, you get more miles per gallon out of that one. Do you think it's also because he's from New York? Like, who would drive uh, yeah. in New York? Do you know what I mean? It wasn't really a, if you were, especially if you were in sort of Manhattan. Yeah, I guess you'd be It's not great for cars, is it? Like, especially big ones. More on the underground. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, I know what you maybe. mean, because rap is usually like yeah. massive, yeah. kind of bling, yeah. loads of women on the hood yeah, and all yeah, of that. Like, but oh, I, I like that. I mean, I, I actually thought it was lovely that he liked E.T., Oh, that, that was really, really sweet moved as well, me. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was what very. Does, what sweet. does he say about your teaser? Just say it's the last film he saw or his favourite. Well, film? I think he he put it with Poltergeist, but he said he was kind of praising Spielberg. Spielberg must be a genius because E.T. wasn't geared too much towards the kids, and it wasn't geared towards adults. It's for both groups, and that's a very hard thing to do, which I think is yeah. quite a. You know, you'd never fast forward a few years. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't get like <laughs> no some case. rap artist going like, "Yeah, ET was, yeah, it was for the kids on the yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want. I did wonder whether the favourite sandwich thing was a translation issue as well between yeah. American and British That's culture. That's true. That's not a sandwich because he says hamburger with ketchup. Yeah, and I'm like. That's a burger, mate. That's not a sandwich. That's not a sandwich, is <laughs> no. it? No. <laughs> That's a cultural mismatch going yeah, on yeah, there. Yeah. Something lost in translation. Yeah. I do remember seeing the message on TV 
And, you know, there's a handful of kind of like magic moments for me when I, I think I first saw a, a, a band ever on telly. And I do remember that with the message because it was just, you know, and it's interesting seeing him answer these questions because I do think at that time America just felt like such another country. Just that kind of guys standing around on some New York pavement and kind of describing this sort of ghetto life was just mind-blowing. Yeah, you know? it was like another planet, wasn't it? Absolutely. It really yeah. And it was also like, a, um, I, I used to really like songs with a lot of words because mm. that, that was sort of quite a competitive thing at school. You had to <laughs> yeah. learn the words. So Baggy Trousers was a good one. Yeah. Call for Cats was a good one. Yeah. The Message was a very good one. If you knew all the words to those sort of songs and could say them all the way through. And then also I'm thinking of Rapture because he yeah. gets mentioned in that, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was another one. So if you do like the rap bit from Rapture, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, Flash is fast. Flash is cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still got it. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess New York was kind of on our screens more that year, anyway, with, with that fame. fame. Yeah, which comes up a lot in this issue. Yeah, yeah. It does, yeah. Um, but uh, Grandmaster Flash again and the Furious Five would be representing a different side to New York to, mm. to what we were seeing every week after Top of the Pops. But we'll get to yeah, fame later. Sure. Uh, so also in start here is a, a, the Anthony Nowhere League talking about their new single. There's a, a couple of photos of audience members for the Jam's run of final gigs. And there's a bit more about that later in the magazine. But they've got a couple of girls who've come over from Tokyo and a couple of guys as well who've come over from uh, Los Angeles. So they, they've come a long way. Yeah. Uh, flipping the page, there's a... Here's New York again. Do walks in the country bore you to tears? There's a sound of rustling trees and tweeting birds drive you spare. Fear not. Here's just the thing to bung in your walk when next time you're caught short in those leafy lanes. A tape of honking, shouting, police sirens and dustbin men recorded live on the streets of New York. You want street credibility? Well, here it is. I'd be interested to know what the sales figures were for that. Yeah, I mean, was that a, a, a tape that you had for your walkman, Mickey? Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to get my head around why that would be a thing that you'd want. Although I suppose it could be a kind of like, you know, like those BBC sound effects things. Like yeah. maybe that was, you could put it on in your bedroom and reenact, pretend you're in New York. New and, York street. street yeah, yeah, yeah. And immerse yourself in. Maybe just feel like someone from fame was about to spot you or something like that. I don't yeah. know. But yeah, hard, hard to see the target market for that, really. <laughs> I've got to say. Uh, next to that is a uh, big photo of the special, a.k.a. In their current form, uh, so obviously the, the lineup was kind of fluid, shall we say, after Terry Hall and Linville and Neville left to form the Funboy 3. There's a little photo of one, the juggler. Remember them? <laughs> no. I remember the name. I, but, I yeah. remember the name. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, me and, like, our schoolmates, we used to... Oh, such a ridiculous thing. We, I don't know why we used to do this. I think, I suspect it was Emma's idea, but we used to do, like, what we called the rude charts, so we'd make up stupid, rude names for bands, right? <laughs> and so Duran Duran would Durex Durex, and then you'd make up some... I mean, it was really bad puns, basically. And all I can remember is one, the bugger. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I... It just came to me when, when it came up on this list. Oh, oh God. <laughs> so we've got Tears for Fears. There's a nice big black and white photo. They're actually looking at each other rather than looking away from each other. Although quite awkwardly. 
Yeah, and they pull in their <laughs> faces, but at least they're looking in the same direction at each other, which I think is probably the only publicity photo of Tears for Fears I've ever seen them doing that. And Johnny Black goes to visit them as they're recording their first album. They're recording it at a studio in Chalfont St Giles. And I'll just <laughs> set the scene. Uh, which so is a kind of euphemism for piles, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, me Chalfonts. Ooh, in rural Chalfont. Uh, it's, Johnny says, um, We'll whisk there to the studio on a frost-nipped morning. We arrived at a cobbled farmyard and were greeted by an ancient nervous Labrador before being shown into a small reception room with white-painted stone walls and inset oak beams. Now, this next bit I wasn't expecting. Two semi-naked figures, one male, one female, emerged from behind a heavy door, looking sheepish after their early morning shower. Doesn't anybody have clothes round here? inquired our record company host. You could have knocked, grumbled the sheepish male, suddenly aware of Virginia's cameras and my tape recorder. Where's the band? demanded our host, hoping to move on to less dubious matters, but predictably they were still in bed, having been recording until 6am. Kurt is first to surface, apologising for Roland's delayed arrival. He takes quite a while to get his toast together, Kurt explains as we cross the courtyard again, accompanied by the studio cat through a six-inch thick door, past the asteroids machine, the mixing desk, and the table tennis area, eventually settling down in the lowest, softest armchairs in the world. While we wait for Roland, Kurt explains why they chose to work in misshrouded Chalfont St Giles. We wanted somewhere with no distractions. If you work in a big studio complex, you walk down the corridor and hear Mick Khan playing bass next door, and he's so good, you wonder why you bother. So there we go, that's kind of setting the scene, and it's really a bit of a a bio, really, of, of the band and what they've been up to. It talks a little bit about Graduate, the band they were in before, that kind of a mod revival band. I learnt a few facts from the interview. One that um, I always thought Roland was, was just called Roland Alazabal. Turns out he's got, like, an extra bit to his name, Roland Alazabal de la Quintana. I hope I've pronounced that OK, sounds about right. I found out Quintana's either a country house or a five-day fever. Oh, sorry, a fever which occurs every five days. I'm presuming it's... Roland Alathabal of the Country House. It sounds, I'd, I'd sounds imagine better, so, yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's quite a posh name, that. And also they'd only written um, two songs before they were signed to Phonogram, which, I mean, seems pretty unbelievable that they would get a big record contract like that just on the basis of a couple of demos. I think Suffer Little Children... No, sorry, not Suffer Little... That's the Smiths. Suffer the Children and, um, and another track. But, um, Mickey, you were... I think you'd been to see... Tears for Fears around this kind of time, hadn't you? Yes. So it was actually, they were supporting the Thompson Twins. And I thought, I thought it was the first time I saw it. But it, it was the first time the Thompson Twins were a three-piece, I think. It was that. It was I the, making that transition from the... Yeah, so it was the first gigs they did as, you know, the new Thompson Twins, because I'd seen them as a seven-piece when it was more kind of hippie and kind of percussive and what have you. So this was the sort of new three-piece and, and Tiz Fizz was supporting. And I managed to get an autograph. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I managed to get Tiz Fizz autograph. <laughs> and I do remember it really vividly because we were right down the front and I liked them, you know. I thought they were, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to lie, I liked everything then, you know. Anything that was put in front of me, I was like, wow, this is great. But... um yeah, I did buy that album, actually. It was funny because we when I was playing the tracks that are all, you know, you sent me like a playlist and Moose was at home and he's just ranting in the background. He was like, oh, I fucking hated this song. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> and I did think, I know what you mean, and it was ruined a bit by Smashy and Nicey when I've just got that. Now, every time I hear it, I've got that mental image of Paul Whitehouse as that DJ going, yeah. mad world. <laughs> <laughs> it's like terrible. I'm still quite fond of it. It was weird to hear it because I hadn't heard it in years and it kind of... Yeah, I thought it was a good song, actually. And then I watched the Top of the Pops thing. Oh, yeah, we need to talk about yeah. the invisible plectrum or not. Yeah. Well, so, so the describe. thing, so the context is right, is that at that age, we used to go, so Emma used to live quite centrally in London. Her dad ran this naval and military club on Half Moon Street in Piccadilly called the In and Out Club, I think. But, um, Anyway, it's, it's so bizarre, isn't it? I'm saying all this stuff like it's really matter of fact, but even when I think about it, I think, God, that was weird. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, is that she had, like, a video player. This was really unusual back then, right? Yeah. So we used to go around there and you'd get free scampi and chips off the kitchens and we'd sit there and her mother used to give us cider. I don't think she realised it was alcoholic. I certainly bloody didn't. I used to wonder, like, we always have an amazing time at Emma's. I wonder why. And... So she'd tape all this stuff off, like Whistle Test and Top of the Pops. And um, the thing is, is because we used to watch this every day, virtually, this tape, this hour-long VCR, we got to know every nuance of every performance. And we would develop these sort of, like, almost like a kind of secret code of impersonations of people that were just fleeting moments of an appearance. They had, they bore no real significance. So we had like an impersonation of Billy McKenzie that was literally, he did this sort of gesture with his hands in the middle of a song. And then we'd just do that to each other and Billy McKenzie. <laughs> no, everyone else is like, what are you talking about? And the Roland Orzabel one, or however you pronounce so it. Like because, Quintana, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, when they do Mad World, there's this middle section where he does this sort of semaphore sort of arm dance. I mean, I, he's got quite nice arms, so I don't know if he was sort of showing them off a bit if he'd been working out. But there's this sort of kind of, you know, motion that he does. And then right at the end of it, he kind of like puts his hand to his mouth. And I always thought it was quite touching because it was like... Oh, he's suddenly a bit embarrassed that he's done that. And he's like, like, oh, anyway, right, I'm going to go back to playing the guitar. But as I watched it this time, I thought, oh, is he doing what I sometimes do? Which is when you're sort of fiddling with other stuff and you put a plectrum in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> is he retrieving the plectrum? <laughs> and I totally misunderstood. I had this whole character assigned to him on, this, on the basis of this one gesture <laughs> that is completely wrong. So if anyone knows him and can yeah, explain can it, find out. I would love to know because I think you've yeah. studied it. I, I looked about eight or nine times I, this morning. I, I did and the same yesterday and I was, after you mentioned it and I was like, I was going back and like, what is he doing now? Is there, is there some plectrum removal going there? But why, why, would, he take, the but why would he take the plectrum out with his left hand? Because he'd have to pass it to his right hand. You're right. Yeah. So, so you, you wouldn't... But he might have been... Yeah. There are reasons... He may have had, like, his hands on the string. I know it's mine, yeah. right? But out of force of habit, he might have had his hands on the strings to mute them and then taken it out with his left hand and then passed it to his right. It's still, it could still be that. Yeah. Either that or he's just got... I mean, going back to hair, he's just got hair in his mouth. Yeah. Furball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he's got a big hair, hasn't he? Well, yeah, you can... Roland Orzabel's furball. Yeah. <laughs> OK. <laughs> I wondered if it was... Yeah, I mean, 
I kind of get the idea that, yeah, you know what you said about maybe just a bit embarrassed as well. I, I still think it could be that, but yeah. It could, well, it could be that. I mean, it, it, could, it could be that. It's I, a multitude of things. Yeah. I mean, it did look a bit, I mean, you say it's sort of like a semaphore thing, and, you, and you, you've still got those moves going I've on, I've still got that. them, yeah. I, I mean, it did strike me as a bit of a bit of a farm hand, maybe pumping something. I don't, I'm not quite sure. Uh, Careful. Yeah, he's, gone, he's, gone, he's gone to the well. Yeah, uh, you know, he needs to fill up his bucket or something. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. I, I have to, I've suddenly remembered as well, when... Lush recorded with Robin Guthrie. They were at, um, so September Sound was above Eel Pie, like, um, what's his face from The Who? Oh, Pete, Pete Townsend. Townsend. So it was above his studio. And Tears for Fears were recording downstairs when we were doing, I think, probably Spooky. Right. And I remember, <laughs> we, I was literally on all fours trying to hide and peek over because uh, Roland was on the deck, decking or whatever it was, outside the downstairs studio, open air, dancing along to his, oh. his own music. In a similar that he was, Quite style. possibly. Yeah. It had arm movement, for sure. Because he yeah. does that in the Mad World video as well, doesn't he? If you've seen Let's him, see. like Kurt's looking out the window and Roland's in the garden. In fact, somewhere in, Way- in the Weybridge area, there's a, a pub on a campsite that might still have CCTV footage of me doing that. Me and Lynn, my wife, we were camping... About three or four years ago, we'd had a terrible time. The bell tent had flipped inside out. We were trying to sort it out. It was getting dark and we were getting desperate. We were virtually crying. It's going, how did you get this bloody tent? And then somehow we managed to flip it the right way around. We were so relieved. We went to the bar. No one else was in there. We had several pints and they had like a great video jukebox, like an old style video jukebox. And they had Mad World, loads of 80s stuff. So we were like, oh, Mad World. We were a bit obsessed with the video anyway. And after a while, because we'd had a few pints, we started, we were doing like a Roland off. We were like both dancing. And we've been doing it for like probably a couple of plays of the song. And then we realised there were like CCTV cameras all around. And we were like, oh, shit. <laughs> we have to stop. But there might still be footage somewhere. I, I like to say I won. But I, I don't know. Lynn would probably disagree. But it's a great, it's a great tune to do that to. I feel like we've really dissected uh, the arm movements more than enough. <laughs> yeah. I don't think any other podcast would dive so deep onto well, I think we should revive that dance, personally. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, I tell you what, they clearly did enjoy the residential studio experience because when Lush were looking to record um, Split, our manager at the time, you know, thought it would be an amazing idea to get us to go to a residential studio and, and theirs was one, one of the ones we went to to have a look it was in, in Bath, I think, was it Wall Hall? Hall. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. The only flaw in this plan was that I was getting, you know, ferried around the studios and I had absolutely no idea of what I was looking for. Do you know what I mean? It was like they were sort of showing you this equipment and I go, fine. And the only bit I can remember is the woman showing us around said, I think she was, oh, I can't remember which band it was. It was definitely a heavy metal band, and she said, because um, you know, all I cared about was gossip. I was like, oh, who else has been here? And then she mentioned this band, and she said, yeah, they were pretty wild, and they were constantly playing practical jokes, and that they found, like, a mackerel nailed to the underside of a floorboard mm. um, after they left, just to create a horrible stink. I thought it was quite an entertaining story anyway, yeah. but, you know, <laughs> But you didn't choose that. <laughs> I didn't choose no. that because it was, it was, I think I found, I mean, it was a lovely studio, but, like, too nice. And yeah. we went to Peter Gabriel's studio as well, which was ridiculous. I mean, it was like, it was so moneyed. And, and we ended up at Rockfield because 
It's a bit more down at heel. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's nice, but it's a bit more shabby, yeah. which was more our kind of style, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> Well, we turn the page and we do get uh, a couple of lyrics here. Dave and Bing and their Christmas offering. And next to that, the Masonettes. Was it Masonettes? How do you say it? How would you I'd say, say Masonettes. Masonettes, okay. And uh, hit Heartache Avenue, which I've never been a fan of, but Gavin? Uh, I'd like it. I like, yeah, I still like hearing it now. It's catchy. I think so, yeah. I did find myself thinking it sounded quite similar to that happy together because when I was listening to it I was singing that over the top you know the oh yeah yeah I didn't spot that but yeah well there are strong 60s vibes and I think they're trying to do like a Motown pastiche and there was a lot of that around in 1982 anyway you got Phil Collins doing his cover of rather slavish cover of You Can't Hurry Love Jam's Town Called Malice you know if that ain't Motown what is it so a lot of that was in the air but I think this is more like what you know like a 60s song British songwriter producer someone like Tony Hatch would have done like yes I know we'll write a Motown song for Petula Clark uh, but, you know, trying to get Petula to be a bit more dusty or something like that, yeah. but ends up coming out more like Silver Black or something. This is niche, but it has a definite Pie Records vibe about it. But I quite like that about it. I, 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 yeah, I don't like it. And he also prefigures, like, all the, the kind of Motown pastiches that we get as, you know, like Phil Collins again with, like, you know, Two Hearts and Loco yeah. and Acapulco. And that then becomes the sound that... Westlife, Boyzone, and yeah. S Club Seven, Spice Girls, yeah, kind, kind of they they copy that sound, thinking that they're doing a Motown pastiche, but they're doing a Motown pastiche of Phil Collins's Motown pastiche, which was the Masonettes Motown pastiche. So it just gets really diluted down. It's it all sort of it's all strips horrible. the soul out of it a bit, doesn't it? I mean, I I I genuinely couldn't remember this song <laughs> when I played it, and I just thought it sounded like an advert or something do you know what i mean like yeah. or a or a tv theme tune or something yeah um, it does have an air of crossroads about it well i don't know i remember thinking that at the time there was something okay. about it that reminded me of crossroads right okay yeah. i mean it's really catchy yes don't get me wrong you know what i mean it's yeah, clearly yeah, well yeah. crafted but yeah. i just thought it was but then i because i couldn't remember who they were did they have yeah. any other hits that was i think the, the one, hit, okay. one hit maybe that's yeah. why yeah but i did, didn't like it then don't and like you it. Don't like it. Don't like it. Don't like it <laughs> we turn the page. We get to uh, get smart. Got a musical question. No matter how major, no matter how slight, Linda should be able to dig up the answer. Uh, so there's a few things that are addressed here. Please tell me what has happened to Haircut 100. I've heard lots of rumours that they're about to split up. Could this be true? This is from Nick's Left Toenail in Dundee. The group's office emphatically deny that they have any thoughts of disbanding and would like us to stress that their proposed tour, which should have happened around October, has not been cancelled completely, but merely rescheduled. The reason being that their second album is taking longer than at first expected to complete. They hope to have it finished by the new year in order to begin rehearsals for their dates in February-March. In other words, <laughs> about yeah. to split up. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the bands, the bands split up. Yeah, there was a good episode of the uh, Rock and Tours podcast okay. uh, with with Nick Hayward as a guest, 
and he, he does talk a bit about that time. Basically, he was absolutely frazzled as, as a songwriter in the band. Mm. He was just going to pieces, didn't really have the support of you know his, his bandmates and management mm. and stuff. And yeah, I, mean, I, I think you know he'd pretty much left the band by that point. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they, they were uh, trying to like, no, the it's office, still going. Yeah, still the going. office is yeah. like, no, 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 no still, yeah. still going, still going. Because you know, we're only a few months away from Whistle Down the Wind. You know, the, yeah. um, what was what was his album? Uh, it had Blue Hat for a Blue Day on it as it well, did, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that album. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that one. That that one. That essentially should have been the second uh, Haircut 100 album. Yeah. But it was Nick's first solo. Ah, okay. So there you go. This thing about Simon Le Bon's qualifications and O and A levels, right? Yeah. Look, didn't it say somewhere that he's been taking exams since he was three? Is that a joke? I'm sure it said that. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. Simon says he's been taking exams since the age of three, but. Yeah, what exams I mean, is he taking <laughs> at the age of three? I don't know. It, it was a, a chorus. Maybe he was doing the, some music. Music but three. Still at three. Seems, I mean, maybe eight, nine, but not three. Maybe it was we? his ballet lesson or something. <laughs> I don't know. Blimey! <laughs> I was quite intrigued. I, I didn't know anything about George Davis. It asks in the question. Uh, also, who is Georgie Davis? As mentioned in um, Friends of Mine. I had to kind of go on a little Wikipedia hunt to find out. He was born in 1941. He became known through a successful campaign by friends and supporters to free him from prison after his wrongful conviction in March 1975 for an armed payroll robbery at the London Electricity Board offices in 1974. It says, uh, The conviction was based solely on unreliable use of identification evidence in the absence of other evidence connecting with the crime. Roger Daughtry of The Who went on stage in 1975 wearing a T-shirt emblazoned with George Davies' Innocent. And George Davis' Innocent was a song on Sham 69's 1978 debut album, Tell Us the Truth. Uh, and the Cockney Kids Are Innocent, one of their songs uh, ends with a name check. Patrick Fitzgerald also showed support with George on the 1979 EP, The Paranoid Ward. Davis received a name check in the Duran Duran song, Friends of Mine, as, as we learn there, on their album in 81. At the chorus beginning, Georgie Davis is coming out. It goes on to say in Wikipedia, he was released in 1976, but was later jailed for two cases of armed robbery. <laughs> In 1977 and 1987. So maybe he wasn't that innocent after all, but yeah, there we go. But obviously became a bit of a kind of a cool celeb amongst the musical kind of world and, you know, the rock world at the time. Uh, shall we move on to the bit below, RSVP? Yeah, let's, let's have a look. Yes. RSVP International. Yeah, I'm going to say not just any RSVP, but international RSVP. So we've got um, correspondents from Greece, Malta, the USA, Japan, South Africa, Sweden, Finland, Australia, You sound Canada. like you're doing David Bowie at the start of... Uh, <laughs> Australia. South America. South America. Yeah. Brazil, <laughs> Ireland, Portugal, Lebanon! Um, Anybody there that, that you would have written to? I mean, did, did you have any pen pals, Mickey, back in, back in the day? I did have pen pals, but I think I actually had pen pals because I actually did go to Japan to visit my grandparents and to America to visit my mum and to Hungary when I was on holiday with my dad. So, and even to Spain, he had a place in Torremolino full it with, well... I mean, it was it served a specific purpose for him, I think. Anyway, that <laughs> coincided with family holidays. Um, so I think I I did sort of pick up random people that I had like pen pal relationships with, and then when I started doing a fanzine, when me and Emma started doing a fanzine, I corresponded with loads of people. So I was quite a letter writer actually. Mm. I did enjoy it, and also because I'd moved from so many schools, I kept in touch with people that I'd been at school with. So. 
So I probably didn't need any more. Yeah. You know. It's like you had quite enough going on. Yeah. yeah. Although uh, there was a couple that did sort of, I did think there was um, a guy here who says he lives right near the Hollywood sign. Oh, okay. Ashley Brooks in California. Oh, right. Here we go. Co- top of column two. Greetings from the States. I'm a 19-year-old boy living below the Hollywood sign, but I yearn for European attention. Ooh, I love nice UK phrase. girls. <laughs> okay. Fans of Simple Minds, Spandau, Tears for Fears, Wham, Orange Juice, Funk, Films, Style, and lots more. See, I probably could... That's not a bad one. I actually looked up his address, and I could have walked there in about an hour from my mum's. Okay. Like, 12-minute car ride, but I, did, I didn't drive, so... Um, and then there was a Japanese girl, Kumiko... I'm 18. I love The Clash, Ultravox and Blue Rondo a la Turk. Please write and send photo too. And then and that's another one where I thought, actually, that would have been reachable on the tube system. But I'm kind of like looking at this way too on a practical level. Yeah. As an adult now. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, if I take the number yeah, 37 and then, yeah. I was, I'll tell you who I was quite intrigued by. There's someone here from South Africa who's into Bow Wow Wow, The Clash and Duran Duran. But I did think he seems very keen to establish that he's not black. Because <laughs> yeah. he says, I'm a 17-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed okay, South yeah. African boy. <laughs> Which yeah. I just thought... I think we know what you're saying there, mate. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get you drift. Yeah. <laughs> I did think it was a bit of a giveaway, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, yes, I am white. Yeah. <laughs> In case you were white. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I like the guy, uh, my name is Fabian, and I live in Sydney, Australia. I'm in the final stages of art school and playing a synth-pop-based band called Fiction Romance. If you don't want to know about kangaroos or koalas, but like good Australian, the church, ice house, and British, Simple Minds, Tears for Fears groups... Right to Fabian Byrne in Australia. I've been in touch with Fabian. Have you been in touch? I have. With him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I did a little bit of stalking, but I didn't go as far. Oh, as, no, I stalked like, the whole way, baby. Are yeah. you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got in touch with him, uh, and just I found him on Twitter, and I said, "Did you by any chance used to be in a band called Fiction Romance?" He was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." So I sent, we sent DMs to each other, uh, and I was curious to know how many um, responses he got. What, what would you imagine, Mickey, would be like ballpark figure for how many letters? You might get... Blimey. Oh, God, I mean, I've got no idea. What, shall I just pluck, guess? Pluck shall I say, out. like, 30? OK, Sorry. Uh 18. OK, no, you're, you're closer. It's between 50 and 100. Oh, wow. Responses. Shit. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He said him and his bandmate, Doug Lees, uh, received lots of replies, somewhere between 50 and 100. And I asked whereabouts they were from, because... Obviously, he, he's in Australia, and Smash It's was kind of sold around the place, but obviously it was largely a UK audience, and he said, yeah, it was mainly people in the UK writing to him. And I said, I'd love to hear some fiction romance as well, if you can send me an MP3. So uh, he sent me a track called So Close to You, which they recorded in 
There you go, fiction romance. So thank you very much, Fabian, for sending that. That was very kind of you. That's amazing. Because it was a bit of a bolt out of the blue for him, I'm sure. Someone suddenly got, you, were you in the bathroom? <laughs> but he, he got back in touch, very polite, very nice. So thank you very much. Anything for you there, Si? Uh, well, Fabian was one of the people that kind of piqued my interest. I mean, the, the band did actually release an album in um, 1987, and they put out a handful of singles as well. So, yeah, there's a couple, couple of tunes on, on the YouTube. Yes, if, he if mentioned you want, that. Yeah, yeah I want yeah. to go and uh, uh, find those. Yeah, I mean, there, there were quite a few people, but the, the, the opening one, Strange Female, 16, wants any pen friends anywhere. <laughs> I'm into Soft Cell, Tears for Fears, Bowie, Japan, OMD, Clash and New Order. I also like poetry, graphical art, and John Taylor's haircut. That's somebody who calls himself Orange Juice, who's in Athens, in that there, Greece. I bet she got a lot of responses. Yeah. <laughs> Not least because Athens is quite a good holiday destination, actually, yeah. for like, you'd, you'd fancy chances if you're a sort of teenage boy thinking, I could actually meet this yeah. girl. <laughs> you know, flights. We get a family yeah. holiday to Greece. Yeah. It's not beyond the realms yeah. of possibility. <laughs> if you strike up a bit of a romance. <laughs> good taste as well, isn't it? Isn't yeah, it? really good. Ah. Yeah. Really good. Can't argue with any of that. Exactly. Now, moving on to <laughs> Mike's score in bits, 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 bits. Uh, we've got a couple of pages. We'll, we'll start with Mike from A Flock of Seagulls. He does his top ten. thought some quite interesting choices here. He's obviously a fan of Bill Nelson. He chooses uh, Do You Dream in Colour as his number one song and uh, Living in My Limousine as his number four choice uh, of Do You Dream in Colour. He says it was completely different to anything going on at the time when it came out. I'd never heard anything like it. He's also got a Bowie choice at number seven, Cat People, which is perhaps a little bit of an unusual one. It is, yeah. I thought. Well, he does it. say I'm not a big Bowie fan. Yeah, which is, yeah, that's true. And he talks about, I think he likes the fact that George Open Moroda was, uh, was quite involved. And he says it adds a different dimension to it. So, yeah, I guess that's why he chose that. Obviously, he comes from Liverpool. He chooses uh, Dear Prudence by the Beatles, The Cars, The Police, Ultravox. It's quite an interesting range, Roxy and Stranglers in there. Uh, what else have we got in here? We've got um, it's a little article about King Trigger. Again, like One the Juggler, a name that I've got a few little distant bells ringing, but I, I don't really know anything about King Trigger. But it, it says that the, uh, the lead vocalist, Sam Hodgkin, has left the band hot on the heels of their original drummer, Trudy Baptiste. Sam is starting a career in films. He's already on location in Italy, while the rest of the band consider their future. And I had a look to see what happened, and he actually directed quite a lot of um, pop videos. He did uh, Calling All the Heroes by It Bites, Five Stars All Fall Down, and Brother Beyond, The Harder I Try, amongst others. So, yeah. Was King Trigger River? Yeah, Was floating that down the river in a dugout. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's right. Bit of a I, sort of bow wow wow tribal kind of Yeah, I seem to drum be sound. sitting on the floor at party was yeah. with people rowing to that. <laughs> I think that. that's the only one of theirs that was maybe like a minor hit and yeah I think I think that was it I tell you what <laughs> I tell you what caught my eye was I never knew that Jeff Lynne was five years younger than Andy Summers <laughs> in the, in the happy birthday amazing, bits yeah. I was a bit like oh god really, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so yeah <laughs> Was that your main takeaway from it? It was kind of, yeah. 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 I mean, I did Dollar, you know, I just never liked Dollar. No. You know, I think I always thought he was quite creepy. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Sorry. 
Mm. Um, I've just realised something as well. Oh, yeah. I thought we'd got through this issue without any mention of UB bloody 40. <laughs> oh, no, are they in here? I <laughs> missed it. the birthdays. Oh, there's always UB Rob, bloody 40. Robin <laughs> Campbell of UB bloody 40, 29 <laughs> on December the 25th. I thought we'd got away with it. There's no advert for any of their songs. There's no review of any of their singles or albums. There's no lyrics for a song. There they are. Just sneaking into. The, I suppose there was a lot of them, so there's, there's always a good chance they were going to yeah. have a birthday. yeah. Oh, my God. Every bloody issue. You be bloody 40. There's a little uh, piece on uh, Lee John from Imagination. It says, uh, switch on Doctor Who in February. And this is Peter Davidson here at Doctor Who, by the way, right. just in case you're wondering. And you might get a bit of a shock. Lee John from Imagination is playing the part of Mansell, a deputy captain in a pirate spaceship. Rehearsal starts in early January, although Leggy Lee is no newcomer to acting. He's already had a walk-on part in The Chinese Detective and has appeared in off-Broadway shows in New York. I look, looked it up and found some stills of him oh, right, in, okay. in this episode of Doctor Who. He's even tweeted about it himself. Oh, so, right. Yeah. Wow. It wasn't The Chinese Detective. That was... Was it David Yip? Yes. It was, yeah. wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. Yeah. That's the name I was going to say, and I was like, did I remember that? Yeah, right? you, you it, think, I like, like, yeah. am I making that up? No, yeah, no yeah. I think it was, yeah. Yeah, I think my mum knew him a bit. I think if you were Oriental, I know that's not a word that's allowed anymore, but that is what my mum uses. She was she was part of this thing called Oriental casting. So I think the sort of eight kind of people in in Britain at the time <laughs> who would play replaceably like Vietnamese or, or Chinese or Japanese or anything yeah. kind of all knew each other a little bit. <laughs> like I think she knew the guy who was in Mind Your Language as well, who played right. the Japanese guy in that. So I yes. bet they were busy when they were filming Tenko. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we also got, I think it's quite interesting, we've got uh, Tracy here, uh, who, uh, Tracy Young, talking about her new single, uh, The House That Jack Built, uh, and she came from the pages of, of Smash Hits. It says, you may remember a request from Paul Weller appeared in bits a few issues back for Girl Singers for his Respond label. He received hundreds of tapes as a result and is now recording with a 17-year-old Smash Hits reader. One thing I really liked about um, that Tracy said was this thing about recording uh, a jazz organist. She said she's got an idea. She said, I've got another idea as well for this organist. You know how you used to get LPs in the 50s and 60s of jazz organists doing popular hits? I'd like to do the same thing. Imagine a Depeche Mode tune done on a jazz organ. I've thought a name for it. Bulldog Hammond. Have a geezer on the front cover with a Union Jack waistcoat. <laughs> I thought, that sounds very much like the kind of thing we'd play on Charity Shop Classics. It, it, yeah, <laughs> definitely is. Jazz organ covers of Depeche Mode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, um, I have to shout Jack out as well that, that she is a Spurs supporter. Yeah, so, you, know. so you, you, you like that. You're not. A, you, you were kind of saying earlier on you, you weren't a fan of that song too. I much. wasn't really into. To be honest, I think that there was a period where the association with a lot of like certain bands was very much with kind of soul boys mm. who were like the enemy, basically. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it was quite tribal at the You're time. All, all coming in from Essex. Well, you know, the Pringle shirts and the wedge haircuts and, you know, and they were usually like, I mean, you know, I'm sure they thought the same of those tribes of like, you know, unwashed, stupid fucking students, you know, whatever. I mean, I listened to that song and I did really like her voice. But there's an organ, funny enough, she's talking about an organ, there's a fucking keyboard all over it that is yeah. was actually unlistenable. It was just driving me mad. Plus a load of blokes going, Ugh, at yeah. some point. <laughs> what are they? It's like, 
you just sort of felt like... It was all that, a bit too busy. That song could have been made so differently, and I think mm. it would have been really nice with her voice, but it seemed to be like they were trying to make it something that it was yeah. never meant to be. It's like there's too much packed into it. Well, it, it sounds to me like it's, it's a bit rushed. It's a little bit slapdash. Yeah. Um, but Paul Weller, you know, another Motown thing, because it does have a bit of a Motown vibe about it, and Paul Weller's quoted here, he says, what I'd like to do is build up a body of people who can write really good songs and produce and keep the emphasis on young things and style, like a real 80s version of Tamla Motown, great tunes and voices. Um, if it came off, it'd be great. So, again, that, that Motown thing comes into play and it does have that kind of 60s throwback mm. sort of thing. I think we finally established by the end of the song who... Who owns the house that Jack built? Because <laughs> she repeats it a lot, doesn't she? Yeah, it's very chorus heavy that song. Yeah, but, you know. But like I said, I like her voice on it as well. I think it's a nice tune. We've got the fan clubs, Madness, Barry Manilow, and Modern Romance. <laughs> Quite an unusual mix. It is an unusual yeah. mix. I'd write to them all. <laughs> Do you think they just got up to the M section? Oh, that's what the, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. it's strange that it was kind of uh, in in alphabetical order. Yeah, like like if you take Manilow's surname, yeah. Turn the page, talking to madness. Uh, I, I couldn't quite get to grips with this piece. It's called Seriously, Folks. Our idea of nuttiness has gone a bit. Walt Disney says sucks. Pete Silverton takes a look at the new madness. Um, it just kind of feels a, a little bit inconsequential. He's kind of clutching at straws a little bit, trying to put this piece together. You know, he clearly hasn't got access to the band all at the same time. So I'm wondering if he's you know, kind of um, interviewed them in pairs or something like that, but obviously... You've got pairs, you're going to have an odd number in, in madness, and we'll, we'll get to the odd number in, in a moment. Um, if you can break the madness gang down into pairs of friends, Lee Thompson and Chris Foreman are the least known of the partnership. Should there ever be a competition for the least adventurally dressed pop musicians, both would be in with a fighting chance of a medal. Dressed like average Joes, Lee in a black V-neck sweater, Chris in a black combat jacket, their public profile is considerably less than zero. And then there's a little anecdote here from, from Lee. One day, said Lee, I was walking in North London between Carl and Sucks. One on either side of me. I looked round, and they were gone. These young girls came running past me after Carl and Suggs, who were off up the road. They were only larking about, but... So, yeah, he's had, had his nose put a, yeah. a little bit out of joint. And the talk about... you chasing them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're talking a little bit about the new album, and he says, originally... It was meant to be a concept album, concept album all in, in capital letters. Chris gave the impression that this would have meant little more than links between each track, but in the end we dropped that. People get a bit bloody bored with that sort of thing. Later on, Suggs made it clear that it had reached a much more advanced stage than that. We had a concept that linked four or five songs lyrically. Madness is all in the mind, Primrose Hill and Mr Speaker were among them. The idea was an average bloke going mad, madness in its various shapes and forms. But then we found we'd have to have all these monologues to explain what was going on. And if you don't do it properly, it could sound dreadful. Like tire or something. <laughs> bit of a dig. Yeah, a bit harsh, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, a bit unnecessary. Um, yeah, like I say, if he's doing madness in pairs, there's an odd one out, and that's clearly Mike Barson. The, the, the says, secretive Mike yeah, Barson. because it says, Mike Barson, by common consent, the loner of the group, has moved to Holland where he's been living with his Dutch wife for a month or so. Initially, his moving to Holland did worry me, said Chris, but if he'd moved to Scotland, he'd be just as far away. I phoned Mike at his Amsterdam hideaway. He said the album was a result of an insistence on making things as good as possible and not throwing it together. 
He gave a lot of credit for the album's sound to their producer, Clive Langer. He told me, although he had a piano in his new home, which is more than I had before, he preferred to write in his head, hearing the end result better that way. Only on one subject did he refuse to be drawn, his relocation across the North Sea. He wouldn't even tell me when he bought his Dutch house. I don't see what that's got to do with the article. It's my private life, which I don't like to see in the papers. Ooh. So there we are. Yeah, bit of frosty into that. You, it's quite funny because I thought this feature sort of felt like, given that they had that kind of gang, kind of the nutty boys, it's all kind of bit of a laugh, everything. You, you could feel these sort of cracks in this thing. But then I did think it's really difficult to tell whether they're just taking the piss, right? Because <laughs> at one point, one of them is like, well, I hardly know blah, blah, blah anymore. You know, I can't remember which one of them says it, but one of them saying like, oh, we play badminton now and yeah. again and, and whatever. And I did think he might have just said that absolutely taking the piss. Do you know what I mean? Having done a billion interviews like this. Yeah, and yeah. They're actually making shit up because Suggs is sort of talking about wanting to write about CND or something, isn't he? He talks about getting more political with his lyrics, doesn't he? Our original idea of nuttiness has gone a bit coy, a bit Walt Disney, which was never the intention. I'm a bit more aware than I was three years ago. In the future, I intend to write more serious lyrics about what I'm involved in, like CND, for instance, more of what I believe. You can't stay naive forever. But again, I can imagine him delivering that in a total tongue-in-cheek way, so it's quite hard to tell whether, whether they're actually serious or not. But otherwise, it just it seems, like you say, a bit fractious, yeah. actually. A bit like, oh, yeah, the producer did a great job. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. And there definitely seems to be a bit of a split between the, the atmosphere from the interview and the, the picture. Like, the picture is all like, yeah, we're all still together and all a bit nutty. I mean, maybe it was an older picture or whatever, you know, but... I mean, they were terrifically young. Oh, incredibly, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just think... read Suggs' autobiography um, a couple of months ago and, yeah, they were, like, proper young, weren't they? Like, I don't know, 16, 17, when they kind of first started doing stuff, I think. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that, that he was, like, 18 when they were on Top of the Pops for yeah. the first time, yeah. 17 yeah. or so 18. Yeah, really kind of grew so, up in... Yeah, so he'd only be, like, just in his early 20s. Yeah, oh, right, yeah absolutely, yeah. yeah. But suddenly they're like, oh, yeah, but, uh, but, you know, by this point, a couple of them have got kids and, yeah, I guess, you know, yeah, life's moving on. And I think within a year or so, Mike had properly left the band, hadn't he? And, and then it was kind of, it was quite hard for them after that, I think. But um, as a kid growing up in the 80s, you just loved Madness, didn't you? They were just, they were like around so much, but they were just always great. And they were one of those bands that really appealed to young kids I mean, I know they had like a, an older audience as well, you know, skinheads and, and whatever, maybe. But they were just they were just great pop fun, and they, they'd go on the kids' TV programs and they'd lark about in the videos. They weren't afraid to just look silly and, and do daft things. And yeah, but actually, even though he's saying, "Oh, writing about more serious things," and I remember thinking, "Embarrassment" was like a really brilliant song, yeah. like you know, in the way that say the specials wrote about kind of teenage pregnancy with too much too young which was amazing in itself but I thought that embarrassment was a brilliant version as well that kind of because especially because it's on the bloke Mm. you know it's usually you'd write about like unwanted pregnancy and it would be you know the girl or whatever and I I actually think it's an amazing song to have been written at that time that it's like the public shaming or the family shaming of someone who gets a girl pregnant you know yeah and again like you say particularly so young you know that, that they could write in such a sort of incisive and uh, intelligent way. Yeah. 
at such an early stage in their career. Yeah, I, oh, I loved them. Yeah. <laughs> and and did, did they feel like that they were, because they, they always seem like a proper London band, did they feel like that to you back then? Did you really get that sense of, you know, that this is, this is our band, you know, they're from just up the road sort of thing? Kind of. I mean, I always thought that they were like, yeah, they did feel very London and I, I suppose it felt a bit like the Beatles did to Liverpool, do you know what I mean? They had that kind of, you know, great songs, but that kind of cheekiness and kind of always up, but it felt kind of genuine, like the sort of relation between them and mucking about, but never kind of short of words, not kind of shy and awkward, but actually like a proper gang, you know, and I think that was really appealing. But what's interesting is, is that although they were that kind of London thing, it exported incredibly well, right? So when I used to go to LA, there were shitloads of people who loved madness, right? Which you would not associate with Los Angeles. And equally in Japan, mm. they were huge and they did that oh, the version of City. City. And it was, yeah, it was like the, the Honda ads and, and they did other ads as well. And Japanese loved them. Right. You know, they were huge in Japan as well. So it's sort of interesting that they had that very London, British thing, but sort of translated it was quite across. global. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got to talk about Willie Hutch, right? What, in, in and out? out. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Willie's in and out. <laughs> Willie's in and out. I mean, the in and out I get, okay, up and down maybe, around and around. Okay, I know which body parts we're talking about now, so... It's all getting a bit confusing, but... I think he's covering all bases, really. Yeah, yeah. literally, yeah, OK. I didn't know this song before. You, you I, I, I'm, this? I'm really into this yeah. song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're not liking it, it, it are you? doesn't do it for me. It's a bit too smooth and it just reminds me of, like, a lot of music telly, like, around that time when there'd be people like him on, like, doing those, I don't know, those kind of slow... Very smooth soul ballads that I really. Yeah, it's not a soul ballad. Well, it's kind of, it's, all right. It's, you could dance there's, to there's that. There's a bit of funk in it, but I don't know. It's just yeah, it's not gritty enough for me. Yeah. I mean, it was Didn't probably like a bit it. mature for me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's far I too think... mature for you at that. Age. Oh well, certainly at that age. <laughs> but I didn't know it. I didn't know it when I was eight years old. So it's fair. Fair enough. I mean, I suppose that's the thing when you had that kind of top of the pops. Although everyone talks about it as their kind of growing up years, you know, there was a sort of aspect of it that was appealing to like mums and dads and I mean you know I'm 56 now do you know what I mean and and it would have been like the kind of chart music show for everybody who liked music and I think I know what you mean I mean I found a lot of by then a lot of that kind of soul and disco and stuff was it just felt like it was a bit more for old people, you know I mean which when you're a teenager is anyone over 30 <laughs> right but I kind of get it, listening to it at this age. I think I get it when you're not the person who wants to sit and play a record 40 times and learn every word and know every fact about the musician. Yeah. You just want something on at a party that yeah. everyone can, like, move around to a bit. Or, you know, when you have a sexy lady back home to your, <laughs> your apartment or whatever. Like, I get it. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's more that kind of music, isn't it? Like, mm. it's listenable and it's got a groove and, you know, it's slick and all of that. You don't want something that jarring. But as a teenager, to me, that would have been totally alien. I'd have been like next, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're not going to put the Alice Nowhere League on if you try creating at me, you know, sexy. That's, that's not going to yeah. do it, is yeah, it? No, no, you definitely want some Willie Hutch. It does, Willie Hutch does sound like a, a wooden contraption for placing male genitalia to hibernate in the winter. That's what I thought. 
I okay, so you're both like that, are you? <laughs> right? These just avenues of thought. And you're actually going to turn the page on Barry Manilow without Well, do you, want to, do you want to speak about Barry Manilow? <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Apart from the fact that we all thought it was Shaking Stevens when it first yeah, started. Yeah, but on the wrong speed. It's like a Shaking Stevens 45, but at 33. Yeah. Or, and it's slightly warped, like Barry's bought a... I think maybe Barry being on all day in London, bought a shaky record from the HMV, perhaps in that London town, Taking it back to America, where he lived, or Bermuda Triangle, wherever he was, left it on the back seat, like on the parcel shelf of his um, Ford Escort, and it got a bit warped, and he'd not known what speed to play it at, and then he tried to copy it. And that's the kind of vibe I'm getting from yeah. it. I could have overthought it, but... I think you may have done, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good one. Let's move on to the pull-out section, 16-page pull-out, smash its 1982 readers' poll results. We start with the best group. No surprise at all that Durex Durex or Duran Duran have, uh, have won it. Last year they did well. This year they did staggeringly well. Uh, Ian Birch talks to the band a little bit. I was quite um, interested. Simon Le Bon is asked to uh, peel off his 10 most special moments of the year. You know, and you're considering they've had, like, an amazing year. They've got really big in America and, you know... And he chooses, like, some sort of quite, I'd say, not that interesting moments in, a, in what must have been a year of packed full of interesting moments. Uh, number five is going to sleep back in England, which doesn't happen very often. I kind of get it, but just going to sleep in England doesn't seem like it could be the most exciting. Number seven, like, uh, I think, drops even lower than that. He says, trying to get into the Tivoli Gardens Fun Fair in Copenhagen, but it was closed. Well, that's a highlight. Yeah, and that's one of his top ten highlights, so... I, I think maybe the year See, wasn't that interesting for I him. I think there's a bit of humble brag here. Do you think that's what it's about? Because yeah, it's maybe. like, oh, I never get to be at home. Copenhagen, you know, yeah, he's got... There's a lot of there, sort yeah. of international... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fit in every fucking country I've played in to show <laughs> what an international playboy I am. You know, each one is, like, virtually a different different place you know exhausting oh, ourselves in yeah. the states is a bit of a like yeah we're doing so amazingly well there it's yeah. like yeah <laughs> i'm not gonna lie this is when i sort of started going off them this is like my i like the first album but then rio and all the the models and yeah. the the kind Funny of oh i just hated <laughs> all that i'm sorry i don't know because i think there's, there's the, the trying trying to always a little bit playful there's a little quote from nick rhodes um he says uh we guessed we were in with a good chance, but you never expect to win so much. We're over the moon. Aren't we in bore of the year? No? Oh, that's a shame. Um, so th th there's always a, a sense of, you know, they're just kind of enjoying the, the pop ride a little bit and just have, having fun with it. So I think that there is, there is some tongue-in-cheekness in, in the humble brag, I would say. You think? Yeah. You're giving them the benefit of the doubt. I, I, I mean, look, I'll always, be honest, right? Uh, what I just... Couldn't be, and this is very niche, and it's just because it it's me, right? But I remember sort of hearing that, and this may be a rumor, right? But I heard that Simon Bond met his wife because he was looking through like a, a book of models, like from a casting agency, and was just picking who he wanted, which I just thought was such a revolting story. And then I think when John Taylor was going out with Amanda de Cadenet, who was what like a fucking child, as far as I was concerned, do you know what I mean? And I just think it became this sort of, you know, James Bond, international kind of playboy thing that 
I already hated. Like, the whole point of me getting into music was that it was the other side of it. I loved it when it was like Birmingham and the Rum Runner and they were sort of had that kind of earthiness to them, even though they were kind of reaching for the stars. Yeah. I, like, I liked that kind of slightly shit glamour that a lot yeah. of like Sheffield bands had, do you know yeah. what I mean? But once it became real... I just lost interest because I thought, well, now you're just over there with all the other fucking wankers. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, you know, and I'm not criticising them individually because I'm sure they were having an amazing time and people love their music. But in terms of, you know, as a sort of fan of music, it kind of killed it for me. <laughs> yeah, they felt like really unreachable by this kind of point, didn't they? Yeah. Or, you know, like just... It's just that whole kind of glamour world and... and like, they, they got sucked into a world that I don't think they really changed. Mm. You know, they just got subsumed into it and then became part of that mainstream. So they may as well have come from L.A. at that point, do you know what I mean? Because yeah. that, that was their world. So, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, that's when I fell out of love. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> just quite interesting looking in the top 20 of bands. And I see Bauhaus in there at number 16. Dexys are in at 10. Uh, I should say, yeah, the, so we said Duran at uh, uh, number one, Japan at two, The Jam at three, Heck at 100, about to split up at four, and, uh, and Madness at five. But, you know, you, you were saying right at the beginning of, uh, of our chat, Mickey, about the um, the scope and the breadth of, of the music that was covered. And, you know, and it's good, to, really nice to see um, bands like Bauhaus in, in amongst that that mix, isn't it? You know, it's not just like really commercial stuff, but some some kind of more challenging stuff in there as well. I mean, I would argue that it was because they'd done Ziggy Stardust yeah. and been on top of the pops and probably loads of people fell in love with Pete Murphy's cheekbones. But, um, but they're still in there. But whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, I, that's what I thought was always the strength of the magazine. It doesn't matter how they get there. You yeah, know, once they're in the there, you need, then you kind of explore more about them. And I certainly bought their first album after that. I mean, it took me a while to understand what the fuck was going on. But it was like, you know, it was a, <laughs> another adventure to go on, yeah. Yeah, I'm disappointed that associates aren't in there. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. Billy makes it into, I think, the best vocalist. So he, he does appear, he's at number 17, there he is looking, best, oh, okay. best male singer. So on the next page we've got uh, best female and best male singer. Uh, the top fives for best female singer. Number one, Toya. Number two, Kim Wilde. And Al from Yuzu, or Alison Moyet. And number three, Diana Ross at four. And Marie Wilson uh, at five. Uh, for the men, we've got Simon LeBon, Adam Ant, David Sylvian, Shaky, and Boy George at, uh, at five. He also makes an appearance in the best female singer, Boy George, at number 12. It says, uh, the one shocker here is Boy George's appearance in 12th place. When quizzed about this, George was amused. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a man. I'm not really trying to be a woman. If I did, I'd be going around in a dress and stilettos. I think it's a laugh. It's good, but I'm glad I'm in that category because I've beaten a few good singers. That's the only reason I'm happy about it. Because he's beaten Donna Summer, <laughs> you know, so that's all right, isn't it? <laughs> OK, next page. Uh, we've got Really Saying Something where they've um, taken a few quotes from the year. I really liked uh, Billy McKenzie. We were just talking about Billy. He says in March, very sort of Morrissey kind of quote here, I'm a different person after two cups of tea and a chocolate digestive biscuit. Quite like that. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. uh, I also really love Therese Bazaar um, from Dollar. who says, uh, I used to feed David liver four times a week because it was cheap and I thought it would do him good. <laughs> no context for it, but, uh, you know, so yeah, it's a great quote. I did think that was a very good quote, actually. <laughs> and, I, and I thought the Scritty Politi one was quite funny. 
just because it's so squishy politic. No visual or literary culture can match the innate political strength of the pop single. It's a revolutionary text. I mean, fair play. (laughs) Couldn't agree more. Actually, I did quite like the Gary Newman quote. What does Gary say? uh, I rate pilots second only to God, who I don't believe in anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then we go on to uh, most promising new act, Tears for Fears, uh, are the winners of that. Culture Club come in at two, Musical Youth at three, Wham at four, and nice to see Talk Talk there at five. At six, we've got Savas Sava. who I vaguely remember. There's a little picture of them there looking yeah, very off the time. Uh, what's quite funny is in this, you know, more currently, I was thinking, was it Savas Sava? Was it, is it Carver Carver? <laughs> it's now. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, it would, on it like carvers, Carver. like kind of, I think you know. at the time it would have been Savasa. Exactly. Right, but, but you'd need the little, need the little sedilla little, thing yes, or whatever it yeah. is, yeah. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe I misread it. Maybe it is Carver Carver. They were years ahead of the time. <laughs> that's, that's how I read it, Carver Carver. Carver Carver. <laughs> <laughs> I see Farmer's Boys in there. Yeah. Them. Who were White and Torch? I've, I've got one of the 12 inches. They oh, were a duo, obviously. Uh they had, I think, maybe two or three singles. I don't. I think they maybe grazed the top sixty a couple of okay. times, but nothing kind of in the top forty. And Scarlet Party. I don't remember them either. No. Oh, I looked. I looked them up because I was interested in them. Yeah, uh, Scarlet Party. They only ever released two singles. The only, like, the main thing of note was that the guitarist was Mark Gilmore, who was David Gilmore's brother out of, out of Pink Floyd. Okay. Which I, you know, I guess may have possibly opened a few doors for them in the music biz. But yeah, they. They never did anything. And then we've got uh, Best Singles, uh, Save a Prayer, Duran Wins, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, Culture Club, Come On Eileen, Dexes, Mad World, Tears of Fears and Ghosts by Japan uh, at five. We've got uh, Kids from Fame making an appearance at number 18 with Star Maker, uh, Past the Duchy, Musical Youth at 13. I mean, I'd say they're all, really apart from Star Maker, really, they're all songs that are still pretty well known now. Well, apart from uh, Friend or Foe by Edaman. Oh, of is, course, yeah. Which is yeah. a yeah, bit of an, an odd one out. In, yes, in yeah, I missed that one, yeah. Uh, I mean, Goody Two Shoes comes in at nine, but then Friend or Foe at 16. But yeah, that's not really, uh, I think most people, I, I could whistle it, but I think most people would struggle to these yeah. days. To be which was the Wham Sorry. one that got in? I don't think they've really got uh, any they, hits by this yeah. point. Just yeah, they're in, in the, the top 20, yeah. Because yeah, I'm just thinking, because t- when we're turning the page, there's a Wham poster. Yeah, yeah, start the new year with a Wham. I fucking loved Wham. Yeah. Right. Despite all my thing about Soul Boys yeah. or whatever, I just remember them being on top of the pops and I was like, what is this? This is amazing. <laughs> I just thought, and watching it again, that wham rap, um, he does look like an absolute star. Yeah, fully formed. There's nothing, when you look at the Tears for Fears thing, I mean, bless them, you know, they're quite nervous and it's sort of quite muted and what have you. And George Michael is right out, (laughs) like absolutely made for it. It's, yeah, amazing. Because Wham Rap is about being on the dole. Yes, yeah. It must be the only song that mentions a fucking B1 and B2 form, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and, and again, even the, the Young Guns was all about not getting married and not settling down. Okay, there's subtext that we now know. But, yeah. you know, um, I think it felt really, you know, it's quite counterculture. 
Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. To write a song about being on the dole and actually having a fucking great time and you can dig your grave, I'm having fun, you know? <laughs> I think that's sort of quite anarchic, actually. And it had proper energy as well. Uh, let me go to Best TV Programme. Obviously, Top of the Pops wins that. Fame at two, Old Grey Whistle Test at three, Coronation Street at four, and the Kenny Everett Television Show at five. Uh, best Radio Show... It's all the radio wants to freely. Mike Reed uh, at one, Top 40 Show, David Jensen, Steve Wright and Peter Powell at five, John Peel at six. And then further down the chart, we get some of the kind of local radio from um, from London and from uh, Manchester. We get Gary Crowley. And number 14 on Capital, Timmy on the Tranny. That's uh, Timmy Mallet. Uh, and number 15, uh, and another Capital One, Graham Dean, Capital Radio. Did you listen much to local radio stations? Around that time, or were you like a Radio 1 kid? I think it was Radio 1. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, because we were around the corner from Broadcasting House at school, you know, we kind of see David Jensen. David Jensen always had really good guests, so I remember seeing, like, Mick Kahn walk in there once, yeah. and, you know, that was proper. And Andy Partridge, actually. Oh, okay. I remember running up to Andy Partridge and getting his autograph, and he literally looked at me like where the hell did you hear from yeah. about XTC? And I was like, I've got all your records. <laughs> uh, best albums, we've got Duran again winning with Rio, Kids from Fame at two, Lexicon of Love at three, Upstairs at Eric's from Yazoo at four, and Adamant's Friend or Foe. Roxy Music in there, Si, you liking Roxy. that? Yep, got that for my ninth birthday that year. Equal yeah. 19th yeah. with uh, with Macca. Avalon and uh, Tug of War, tugging it out there at number 19. Uh, then as a, a little review, 1982, the year of the leg warmer from David Hepworth. Yeah, so just in the midst of all the uh, the Polish shenanigans, uh, is David Hepworth looking back on the year, writing about lots of bands breaking up or losing members and concert attendance numbers in constant decline, apart from you, Mickey, you must have been keeping the London gig scene going. You're just a, a one-woman live music industry there. And he seems to be rather keen on ABC. But year of leg warmers, I'm pretty sure that my sister got some leg warmers for, for Christmas that year. I got a remote control car and a Walkman. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, talking of fame, 1982 was emphatically the year of the leg warmer, the leotard and the flying leap. As an American TV series about a bunch of stage-struck teenagers became the biggest TV draw since JR revealed those piranha teeth. Fame was the name, of course, and the fact that it appeared hard on the heels of Top of the Pops every Thursday night did it no harm at all. In fact, when Irene Cara's version of the theme tune soared to number one, it came as no surprise at all, resulting in the odd state of affairs whereby the tune got played twice in six minutes, first as the top single and then over the opening titles of the programme. Um, yeah, I mean, fame was... It, it was, was ubiquitous, wasn't it? Was it was inescapable. Yeah. I do remember enjoying it. And I remember wishing that I had a video recorder so I could record each episode and I thought I could cut off you know, the, the end credits and the opening credits and make my own version of the film, not realising that the film was its own entity. <laughs> you thought it had just been chopped up? I, 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 thought, I thought it was the film that had just <laughs> been chopped oh, up and they just kept on going. That must have been a long film. So I used to, you know, used to imagine what I could do with a video recorder recording fame. But I do remember my, my favourite fame moment. We've all got one. So Bruno, the keyboard whiz. Yeah, I remember Bruno, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he was in his little keyboard lab and he, he was experimenting with a, like a vocoder um, yeah. type thing and lots of banks of keyboards and stuff. And he made up a song about their music teacher. Oh, Shushushurovsky. Shushushurovsky. Yeah. 
And I, I just thought that was outrageous that, that he was doing that and, and, and you know, Doris and all, all, the, all the kids from Fame were all laughing at him and then he gets caught out. He also overloaded a double adapter and, you know... Oh, what a fool. What a fool. And, and, and blew that up as well, so it caused a little power cut in the uh, New York Academy of Arts. So that, that's the, yeah, the, my, my abiding memory of Fame. I've never seen it again since. Right. <laughs> that, that, is, that is 41 years wow. on. So who needs a video recorder? Yeah, he didn't, didn't did not need one. Okay, need I don't think I watched the TV series, so all this <laughs> kind of passed me by. And you didn't yeah. have leg warmers either? I didn't have leg warmers, no. 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 I did go to Pineapple Studios once. Oh, maybe I did have leg warmers. Oh, here we go. Do you remember yeah. going to Pineapple Studios? Because they did... i tell you what they did. I went with my mate Diane, who was a massive Adam and the Ants fan, but only when Adam and the Ants were night in the charts. Yeah. And we went, she took me along because there was a bloke who showed you how to do the makeup. We came out of there with like, you know, the stripe across the face and the whole thing. Like, it was just bizarre. But I do remember going, I did go to some dance thing at, at Pineapple, which is funny because there's a picture of the slits on this page. And I thought that was such a funny thing about Viv Alvertine's book that she taught aerobics classes after the slits mm. at Pineapple Studios. And there, there was a bit of me thinking, I wonder if I went to one of her classes. <laughs> like... <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So uh, on to the next page, we've got Most Annoying Record, What by Captain Sensible Wins. And he also comes in at number two with Happy Talk, the wonderful and beautiful Gumbe Dance Band at number three with Seven Tears, Trio Da 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 at four, and past the Dutchie Musical Youth uh, at five. Friend or foe gets in there as well. Number 15, Adamant. Why would you put Mary Wilson as the most annoying record? Nice Just tune. what I always wanted. That's a great song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we've got uh, Star Choice, where some of the pop stars uh, talk about the, some of their favourite things. Lots of, Just... very, lots of very safe answers here. Yeah, generally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I like that Alf chooses uh, Last of the Summer Wine, or Alison Moyer chooses Last of the Summer Wine as a... Favourite TV programme? Uh, as does Andrew originally. And, uh, yes, indeed, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mary Wilson chooses String of Pearls by Peter Skellen as the best album of the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which did actually, I checked, it did actually come out this year because Andrew originally uh, chooses uh, Roxy Music's Flesh and Blood as his album of the year, and that had already okay. been out two years. Uh, what are you doing, Ridgely? Yeah, keep oh. up. Yeah, well. Well, uh, Terry Hall does well, doesn't he? Of course he would, yeah. picking the Marine Girls. And I thought it was really nice he picked as his best single uh, War Crimes by the Special AKA. Which actually I was listening to and it's an amazing song. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. I was trying to figure out what the time signature is. It's all over the place. It's (laughs) mental. But it's beautiful. And I had that record as well. Um, I'd just forgotten about it. Rhoda Dakar singing. Bloody hell, it was brilliant. It's amazing what you forget, isn't it? So thanks for reminding me of that with that playlist. (laughs) I remember listening to it at the time and thinking, this is weird, I don't like this at all. And now you listen to it and you're like, this is, yeah, like I say, it's great. It's just really interesting, lots of things going on there. David Kidd Jensen, he, he seems like a nice fella. He says... Uh, With a bit most... of a crush on Susie. Yeah, yeah, he loves Susie, doesn't he? Yeah, best, best group, best female singer. And uh, most fanciful human being... Anyone with a good sense of humour. That's well, smooth, isn't it? That's yeah, nice. well, his colleague at Radio 1. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah I made a few yeah. notes on that, yeah. So Mike, Mike Reed, he chooses, uh, what was it, most fanciful human being. He chooses Dorothy Stratton. I mean, a, a quick cursory Google reveals yeah. that, you know, she was a, a playboy bunny. 
That had been dead two years by this point. Yeah, that was that was a little dark, wasn't it? Yeah, very dark. <laughs> yeah, not, not the sort of thing that I expected to be to be reading. But, you, but there you go. He also says about uh, for the most promising new act of 1982, Della Dolan. And when I looked her up, she was um, she had been runner up in the Miss World competition. She was a 20 year old Miss Torquay or something. I think she was. Oh, but he chooses her as most promising new act. So kudos to David Kid Jensen. <laughs> Mike Reed, you cancelled, mate. I was surprised he didn't choose himself. He didn't get, got his guitar out and started <laughs> oh, yeah. singing. Yeah, I'm, I'm the most. <laughs> okay, should we, should we move on? Yeah. Most fanciful human being, male and female. Again, Simon LeBarn uh, wins David Sylvian at two, John Taylor at three, Nick Haywood at four, Adam Ant at five. Uh, there's more Durans at number nine, Roger makes it. And are there any others? Nick at eight. Oh, yes, I missed Nick Rose at eight. Yes, that's right. So is uh, it only Andy Taylor who doesn't get in off Duran Duran? Yeah, Poor old Andy Taylor. he must have felt terrible. I mean, even Tony Adley got in at 14. But <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, the female top 20, again, it's, you know, Kim Wilde and Toya, uh, but a changed order from the, uh, the best singers. So this time Kim wins. Yeah, Kate Bush, the ever-present Kate Bush is in there at 16. Claire Grogan's at three, Olivia Newton-John at four, and Siobhan Faye from uh, Banana Armour at five. And, uh, oh, yeah, we've got uh, Sue and uh, Joanne from Human League both in there, Susan at uh, 11 and Joanne at 12. I thought what was quite interesting about the female charts as well is that there's also kind of a few uh, actors and TV presenters so um, Sarah Green, who was presenting uh, Blue Peter at the time, gets in at 18. Natasha Kinski, who, I guess, has she just been in Cat People a year or two before? Was that her, like, early 80s? Yeah, uh, probably. And Selena Scott, who was... Was she doing TV AM then, or BBC TV, or whatever? Keith Stark. Yeah, Keith Stark. I guess she was famous at the time. Was she going out with Prince Andrew for a while? Yeah. Or Prince Charles? Lucky, no, lucky was Andrew. woman. Andrew, yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Yeah. Becky Bondage at 14, that was nice to see. Yeah. And Suzanne Dando at number nine. Yeah. Who did a, a, one of those Keep Fit albums. That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got the lyrics to uh, I Confess by B, which is a great song, uh, Friends by Shalimar. And then an article on The Boy in New York City, Culture Club Take on America. Yeah, so this is uh, Dave Rimmer, who's gone out to uh, New York with Culture Club and uh, Boy George is kind of... You know, get, getting around town a bit. They've done a gig in New York and then they go for just a little wander around in New York the next day. Dave paints a, a scene. Uh, a typical Sunday afternoon in New York's Central Park. Horse-drawn carriages sweep by full of tourists. Armies of joggers with headphones stream down every pathway. A swarm of roller skaters swirl and pirouette round a ghetto blaster tuned to a funky New York station. Leaning against a nearby tree, a man stares thoughtfully over the midtown Manhattan skyline. His carrier bag bears a haphazard felt-tip legend. God created whiskey and beer to stop the Irish ruling the world. Fact. Um, so, yeah, he's, he's there with uh, Boy George, who, who's starting to uh, you know, attract a, a bit of attention. A fresh-faced boy and girl skate to halt in front of him. Hi, we caught your show last night. It was really great. We're music fanatics. They explain they're from Toronto and wonder if Culture Club have plans to play there. George replies that they probably will in March. We're going to buy your record for our party next week, they declare, skating off again. One of them, still looking back at the smiling George, suddenly loses control and falls over. 
<laughs> so yeah, George uh, causing a bit of a stir in that there New York. Any any bits that stand out to, to you? I mean, what are your thoughts on this piece, Mickey? Uh, first of all, I'd say that that is a spectacular photo. I love that picture. Yeah. It's um, Boy George sort of standing kind of... It's, that's, that's not the thing itself, is it? It's just so. a picture. It looks like a sort of a picture behind him. Of but, the Empire yeah. State Building. It just, it it's a such a great picture. Again, you know, I just... I, I kind of love it as a snapshot of a period where, like... We all sort of knew about New York, but we kind of didn't, like America just being this really separate country. Mm. And you can even kind of get it from the, the text of his interview where he's he's sort of loving bits of it and really drawing away from other bits, like it's freaking him out a bit, you know. And, and I think when I was going to visit my mum in L.A., people because I didn't really much like L.A., and I didn't ever want to live there. And people were always like, oh, you should go to New York. You'd love New York. You're so, oh, British people love New York. And I actually remember going, to, it took me about seven trips to New York before I actually sort of started to like it. Because it was incredibly aggressive. And people were really fucking rude, actually. So I kind of sympathise with him because I can see that on the one hand, he's got like people skating up to him and going, hey, I love you guys and all of that. But at the same time, there's a certain sort of hostility, you know, for someone who looks as unusual as he did at the time, you know. Um, And I think it's also interesting as a piece because, again, you've got that slight fractiousness in the band I think there's a sort of to like one of the bands been out partying all night and (laughs) almost doesn't make it to the photo shoot and George is like fucked off with him and then kind of covers it with this oh no it's great because I I kind of freak out at everyone but nobody takes it seriously and we all get on really well and you think yeah do you though (laughs) (laughs) like not sure that's you can see the fault lines can't you for sure and I think even the kind of quite interesting vibe between him and John Moss you know again I mean sort of already it's quite interesting that it was sort of established in a pop magazine that early that they're the kind of serious people Mm. you know who are really leading this band yeah and the other two are a bit kind of along for the ride you know essentially yeah I mean it says reactions to George around town are extreme to say the least as we walk along Fifth Avenue to visit the Empire State Building, a bunch of men in lumberjack jackets shout obscenities at him from a passing truck. Minutes later, passers-by stare dumbfounded as he dances inanely about the pavement to the bangs and whistles of a dodgy one-man band. A souvenir shop assistant calls over and confides, I'm really jealous, your makeup is very good. So yeah, very mixed reactions, like, like you said. But it does yeah. feel like a sort of constant assault. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that as someone who looked like that, you know, the argument would be, well, you're asking for it because mm. you're dressing like that. But I do think it's sort of interesting that someone like, you know, George, who, I mean, after all, being around Britain dressed in the way that he did must have garnered all sorts of kind of unwanted attention, but that it's actually freaking him out doubly in america yeah 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 yeah, because it it was okay to cause an outrage at home yeah and and get everybody watching top of the pops up and down the land you know is it a boy is it a girl outraging the dads and yeah and and things like that Um, i guess it's just on a bigger scale on on a bigger scale and and like you say a little more confrontational yeah because i mean i always thought what was really intriguing about him was that i think when he got famous initially it was all you know that video of time as well that was you know the current single 
And it kind of plays on that cosy, oh, I'd rather have a cup of tea than have sex. You know, they're all sort of sitting there in some sort of granny living room, you know, and being quite sweet. But I do think he was quite a tough cookie. Do you know what I mean? He was from quite a hard background and and actually was used to having to sort of fight his corner. You know, there was an element of that with someone like Mark Almond as well. I knew someone who was at Leeds Poly with him or whatever art school they were at and said that they came across him once he was in town dressed as Minnie Mouse when Leeds United were playing. I mean, he was sort of, he was like hiding in a doorway and kind of like shuddering with fear, but also fucking loving it, like laughing hysterically and baiting trouble, you know. So I think that idea of being, you know, gay at that time and, and being kind of, loud about it had an awful lot of risks yeah. but they kind of went for it well you know george I mean? had got on his side is kind of it's just his physical presence because he's, he's quite a tall chap isn't he and i've stood next to him at a gig he's like oh <laughs> hello <laughs> this boy george so yeah, like i say he could, could probably handle himself so you wouldn't yeah. want to fuck with him would you Definitely because not, no, like no, i know no i think that was quite deceptive because on telly it looked like oh he's so sweet and cozy and it was like He's, he can handle himself, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Which maybe makes Mark Almond even braver because he was always quite slight, wasn't yeah. he? And that was another song, that Mark and the Mambas thing that's on that playlist. I thought that was amazing. I'd forgotten about that song and it's stunning. Which, which, well, I just thought it was quite interesting because there's sort of two reviews at the back and clearly the jam takes up the major proportion because it's like a farewell gig but I just want to quickly mention the Mark and the Mambas thing which I thought was kind of a weird review a bit damning with faint praise Um, but when I looked at that Mark and the Mambas clip which I think is is, is the track but it's a kind of like you know sort of match to a live performance I just thought he was incredible Mm. it's such an amazing performer and I think I, I did see Soft Cell and, yeah, he had the crowd in the palm of his hand. I just thought he, think he's such a fascinating person because mm. he was so camp, but so there was a kind of edge, again, like you wouldn't want to fuck with him. He had a certain sort of viciousness well, to yeah. him. You know, he's from, what, Merseyside, Southport sort of area? Southport he's yeah. from originally, yeah. yeah. So, again, you know, he would have learned how to handle himself. Which, you know, I think it's a really interesting thing about gay culture, right? So you've got, like, you know, Boy George, you've got him, you've got, like, George Michael clearly kind of doing his first performance. And I do think it's sort of an interesting period for that culture because coming out of the 70s where gay men were framed as kind of... I mean, you know, I'm trying to find a word that isn't offensive, but do you know what I mean? It was all John Inman and and kind of Larry Grayson, and it was all kind of very fey, I suppose, mm. and these sort of, like, timid little fairies. Very was non-threatening the, in yeah, every kind of way, safe you know, kind of... And yeah. actually, I do think that there was a real edge to, you know, all three of those before, even though George, like George Michael wasn't out of the closet, but, you know, they had a kind of... They never play, they didn't play up to that. Do you know what I mean? It was, it, there's a sort of quiet revolution taking place there, I think, mm. you know. That, I, that only occurred to me while I was watching those videos, but I did think, oh, I need to kind of look into that because it was fascinating. Anyway, as, as you, you say about, about damning, with, damning with faint praise, like the way uh, Deborah Steele uh, starts the review of Mark and the Mambas in London. What is it that makes girls scream at boys who look like girls? 
I know Mark Ullman is attractive in a funny sort of way, but hardly what I'd call a real man. And, oh, never mind. <laughs> it's like, OK. And then, you know, like, like he says, seems to kind of generally enjoy the gig and uh, it's like a kind of a cabaret night he's put together. Again, at the end, Mark may not be the best singer in the world, but he's a great entertainer with some terrific ideas. A Little Black Evening was a mixture of the weird, the wonky and the wonderful. A sleazy cabaret. I quite like the idea of not knowing what to expect, dot, dot, dot. So, yeah. See, I read that and I thought, oh, just admit that you really yeah. enjoyed it. <laughs> Who are you writing this for? What do you think someone's going to go like, oh, you, uh, like, you like Mark Arm. You love Mark yeah. <laughs> And he looks like a woman. Yeah, I Because it's, it's like really she's weird. fighting it. Yeah. It's, a bit, <laughs> it's a bit odd, isn't it? It's a strange tone. And to say that he's not the best singer in the world, like, all right, well, that's quite a high bar. Yeah, there's I mean, only he's one a, person who's the best singer in the world. He's a fucking amazing singer in the, yeah. the emotion in his voice oh, and yeah. his delivery, which is amazing. Like, Anyway, go on, you can talk about the jam now. <laughs> so we've got Neil Tennant saying goodbye to the jam in London, their final appearance in London, and then they would play their final ever gig in Brighton six days later. So the, the uh, Wembley Arena and... Reading this, what really kind of comes across is the um, the rapport that they have with the fans. Um, it's a very kind of communal feeling, and it talks quite a few times about the uh, the love between the the group and the fans. And it's, it seems like it's a it's a two way thing. Size already mentioned in the uh, at the very beginning of the magazine. There's some photos of some fans that have travelled kind of halfway across the world to be there. At the time, talking about the split, I thought this was quite interesting. Rick Buckler is uh, quite sanguine. He says, uh, on the face of it, when you see all these people out there, it seems silly that we're splitting up. But there again, we've got our reasons. So I was quite curious to know like whether that had changed over the years, you know, because obviously several decades have passed since then. And uh, earlier this year, he did an interview with um, a website called Strange Brew. Slightly different take on things now. <laughs> he says, I think people still scratch their heads over the reason... There was no reason. There was no great scheme. The reason that Paul gave us about why he wanted to leave the band in that initial meeting was rubbish, basically. He said that he really felt like he was on a treadmill and that he wanted to get off. But this was a treadmill that we wanted to get on. We always wanted to get on. We fought so hard to get on it. So to find somebody in the band saying, well, I want to get off now, you think, well, that's crazy, that's mad. And, of course, the first thing he did was went and got onto a very similar treadmill. He re-signed with Polydor Records before the band had split and just carried on the same treadmill. So that didn't make any sense from the get-go. <laughs> so a bit more honesty about it now, you know. Mm. Um, I'm still, yeah, was it a thing about Paul Weller just not wanting to do the same thing again and again and yeah. just try different things I, I think musically? He, yeah, I think he just kind of felt that it had uh, sort of run its course yeah. and that he was ready to just drop that and Embrace do... cafe do, society. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do something new. And he probably felt that he couldn't do that within the confines of the jam. Yeah. Yeah, with David Bowie did that in the 70s with the spiders and stuff. It's like yeah. he's got to draw a line under it, put a full stop to be able to move on and do that. But I think it's in, you know, a nice quote from Paul Weller here. Um, it says, I still believe in pop music as a force of communication between people. Take this gig here. There's two kids from Los Angeles come over here. There's three Japanese girls come over, some Dutch kids, French kids, Swedish people. It's like the United Nations. It's brilliant. All those people of different cultures brought together through music. I don't think there's many other mediums that can really do that. That's why I really believe in it. Mm. And that kind of points the, the way to that sort of internationalist agenda mm. that the Style Council had. Rather than that, the jam, you know, is that mod, it seems very British. 
there's still jam fans out there now. Why did you why did you break up the jam? You know, the well ends, as as we know them, and that's why. Yeah, it's those guys. That's why Paul Weller broke up the jam. They just yeah. can't let it go. Yeah, uh, that was the glory days of their youth, and they wanted to keep that going. And Paul Weller wanted to move on, mm. and that that was that was how he did it. He was very very forward looking and very very open minded, and he probably felt that maybe his audience didn't necessarily. Or, or that the audience for the jam wouldn't necessarily follow him, and mm. he couldn't do that. He couldn't kind of execute that vision with um, Bruce and, and Rick. Mm. Were, you, were you a fan? I'm, I'm sensing maybe you weren't a big jam fan. I, I mean, I I like the jam, but I probably um, when you talk about those fans, I think that that's probably the thing that slightly put me at a distance because I think there were bands that had followings that. They were so protective, mm. do you know what I mean? And they weren't very welcoming. So I liked the odd thing, but I knew that you can never catch up with those people, do you know what I mean? And unless, you know, I, I actually used to feel like that about David Bowie as well, because it was like, you know, if I sat there and went, oh, I really liked, I don't know, fashion or something, they'd be like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, oh, that's pathetic, you know, you think, all right, well, I won't fucking bother then, you know what I mean? And I think the jam were quite like that, unless you saw them in whatever fucking year, yeah, in whatever venue. The yeah, then you're like, Johnny come lately yeah. and you can fuck off. So yeah. it'd be like, all right, I'll fuck off then, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I knew, you know, like Chris was massive into the jam, I think. So when I met Chris and he was like in Lush and stuff, he was he was like a real Weller fiend, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so again, you know, I think when you've got a mate who's such a fan of something, you're always sort of slightly kind of following behind. Go, yeah, well, I like that. So yeah, put it on. No, it's fine, but it's not really your band. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And then nice little precursor to the Stone Roses here with Buck's Fizz (laughs) doing some painting and decorating. Why? Well, they're just trying to blend into the background on this one, I think. I mean, that's shocking. I'm not hiring them as painting decorators. I'm in a right fucking mess of the wall. And Cheryl's been rolling in the paint, I think. Well, describe the scene for us. Well, so we've got um, your favourite, Mike Nolan, (laughs) you've met. Uh, They're all in um, dungarees and jumpsuits, decorating a wall in, I don't know, very... It's either like an amazing like cubist piece of art or it's just random stuff going on. I'm not quite sure. We need a bit more perspective to see if it's actually an incredible piece of uh, artwork. They're obviously on a tea break, aren't they? Spilt half a cup there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, just painting the wall for, for no good reason uh, whatsoever. Jay Aston seems to have got some paint on her leg or a bit of lippy has come up. I'm not quite sure. Oh, she's got a red pen in her hand. I don't know what she's doing. It's, it's, not, it's not red on mine. Oh, right. Ah. Okay. So oh, that's I don't know what's, just, that's don't know. just print then. Right, okay. Bit of Bush, Bushy's got no shoes on, but look look how good a tan is right to the end of a toe. That's impressive, isn't yeah. it? That's proper tan in there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Buxford's doing some painting and decorating for reasons we know not, but, you know. It's a concept. I think <laughs> it's, it's a concept, yeah. okay? <laughs> you know, interesting sort of jaunty flat cap there on, on one of the girls there. We've got this scenario here, which obviously you know, it's probably been suggested by the photographer or something like that. And, you know, you'll have encountered photographers forcing a vision on you, I guess, in the lush days. I mean, what what sort of things come to mind when you look at Buck's Fizz here? Can you empathise with them? Can you sympathise with them doing this? And, you know, maybe something that Lush did that was a bit like, 
Really? You want I mean, us to I do think, what? I think very early on we did a, a, a photo shoot with the NME that was with Kevin Cummings. He's He now has this whole theory about how it was, you know, it was about pop art and it was blah, 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 but basically involved us, like, having body paint, which, you know, by association means that you're not going to have any bloody clothes on. And apparently... He said that Emma came up with the idea. This is how we ended up doing this photo shoot where he said, well, it was Emma's idea. And Emma was going, I don't think it was my idea. I, I don't remember agreeing to this. And so we ended up having to sort of, you know, I remember sort of wrapping some tights around my chest and also ensuring I decided that, oh, instead of like this Bucks Fizz thing where it's all random body paint, we had one letter each of Lush. Because I thought, I know what they're going to do. They're going to take photos of us and then they're going to cut the boys out. And it's just going to be me and Emma in this sort of like, you know, cheesecake bloody mm. pin-up or whatever. So we managed to get around it just about. But I did know loads of people who said they just folded the poster. <laughs> And I thought, yeah, well, fuck okay. it, what can you do? But no, we didn't. I don't think we did anything like that again. That was It was so early on that I don't think we felt we could put our foot down, actually. But yeah, in the Britpop years, it got a bit kind of like, oh, yeah, we want the four of you with like a bottle of champagne and, you know, like having it large or whatever, because we got in the bloody charts or something. And I did have a famous kind of photo session with Emma with um, Dazed and Confused, I think where the guy wanted me to, like, I mean, basically fucking show my ass or something. I, God knows what was in his head, but I was like, no, I'm, just, I'm no, not doing, I'm not that, doing that, you know. I think the pressure, like, later on, when all that kind of loaded culture came in, but we bailed out pretty soon after that, yeah. so... And maybe, um, I guess you were more confident at that point as well. We weren't, been, well, no, because if you said no, they just didn't have you right, in the magazine. Okay. You know, that was the problem. Yeah. You know, people do ask me, like, did you stand up to it? And you and, and I'd be like, well, yeah, sometimes, but then they just cut you out. Mm. It's kind of a, not much of a triumph. You know, you save your dignity, but you just get ignored. So, um, wankers. <laughs> anyway. And on that note. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just very briefly, just revisiting the magazine again, Mickey, anything stood out to you or, you know, because obviously we've got that photograph of you in LA around that time. Um, what's it been like? How's the experience been looking back again? Has it been an interesting... Yeah, no, it's been great. It's sort of immersed me back into a very, very specific period. And I think what's interesting about when you look back on teenage years is how what a short period of time you're talking about. So when I think of, like, Thompson Twins or going to see, you know, Tears for Fears and all of that, I mean, you're literally talking about a few months mm. before you've moved into a different area of music and then a whole other, you know, journey has taken place. And, yeah. you know, by the next summer, I was, like, living with a boyfriend. And, yeah. I mean, I know that was still very young to be doing that, but... I just think it's so Life rapid, is isn't it? Yeah. Like, like pop music itself. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs>
But yeah, it's great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, Mickey. And thanks to you lot out there for listening. Don't forget to check out our website, giddypoppod.home.blog, where you'll find the links to the issue of Smash It's that we've been looking at along those Spotify and YouTube playlists. YouTube? YouTube <laughs> playlists so you can enjoy your ride on the carousel to its fullest. And of course, you can check out our previous episodes, playlists and scans, our back issues, if you will, while you're there. Indeed. I just want to say... a a big thank you, obviously, to Mickey and also to Una uh, for letting us use her front room for today's episode. First time we've been in someone else's front room has not been involved in the carousel. Yeah. So thank and, you. For, and for cooking an amazing curry. Indeed, yes. We also had a lovely curry, which was very welcome after a long train ride up from London. And a uh, birthday cake. And a, yes, you. <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, big thanks to uh, our mutual friend, Nigel Tassel, as well, previous rider on the carousel for helping set things up today. And also, I wanted to mention my physio, Andrew, in Hillsborough, because I went there this morning and I've still got a bit of a twinge. And I was explaining about the podcast, and I don't know if you really understood what I was talking about, but I said I'd mention him, so that's done. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Uh, And if you want to support us by buying a coffee, then you know what to do. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash giddypoppod. If you feel moved enough to leave us a review, then please do. And do come and say hello to us, and we'll say hello back. We're at giddypoppod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, and now also on Blue Sky and Threads. So, until the next time, ta-ra. Bye. Bye.